0: Hello there, I bet you didn't think you were going to hear from us again, but no, nobody can keep us down. Welcome to the Strange and Deadly Show, brought to you by Gentlemen's Grindhouse Records. I do love rolling me arse. On this show, we discuss films on the Section 3 list related to the video nasties. We pair up our films every fortnight. Lately, not as often, of course. uh, Based on a theme, you can find out more information about all of our podcasts over at Gentleman's records.com and you can subscribe on iTunes and via any podcatcher you might be using. There are so many of them. We'll give you that information again and also tell you how you can get your feedback and comments over to us at the end of the show. But don't worry about any of that for now. Here we are at the very beginning of it. My name is Christopher Clayson. I'm joined by... Tom Elliott. Tom, it's been a bloody long time since we got together to record um, here in Strange and Deadly Land. At the end of July was the uh, the last episode that we released, episode 14. Where on earth have we been, Tom?
1: Where on earth have we been? Um, unfortunately, it's one of those unplanned hiatuses that we seem to have been plagued with this year. Um, mm. It's just one of those things. For me, it, it's been a work thing. I, there's been opportunities to work. And it's like, well, do I take this opportunity while it's there? Unfortunately, podcasting doesn't pay the bills. I wish it did because I think you and I would, uh, you know, we've got a ton of ideas that we'd love to do. But uh, for now, we're going to concentrate on trying to get Strange and Deadly back on track.
0: Yeah, I can totally agree with that. You know, echo everything you said there. There are issues at home that I have to deal with, work things, you know, all sorts of things getting in the way. And unfortunately, um, it it i feel like we keep apologizing lately on every episode that we release uh for for being away for so long it's not that we don't want to do it believe me we absolutely love doing this show but we just have struggled to find the time lately Uh, i even have you know more or less cancelled the solo thing that i was going to do uh which was going to be a martial arts podcast and it may still happen someday but um for now i just want to focus on like tom said trying to get strange and deadly back on track again and trying to get into a good rhythm now that doesn't mean that things won't still come up you know both of our lives can be pretty chaotic sometimes but we're going to do our best to get this going again because there are people who you know still write to us or speak to us on twitter of course who tell us that they really love this show it's their favorite even which is quite remarkable to me that anybody would consider this listening to me not you tom you're a you're a golden boy uh, but not me, uh, squeaky twat, would consider uh, anything we do to be a favourite of theirs. It's quite an honour. So uh, we're going to do our best, aren't we, Tom, to uh, to press on and uh, get this thing moving again.
1: We are. And, you know, not only for those people out there who uh, enjoy the show, which we appreciate, but also for ourselves. I've missed doing it. I enjoy doing it every time. If I had the time, I'd do it every week instead of fortnightly. But, you know, we th- we, we thought fortnightly, we'll manage that we haven't managed that but we're going to try again
0: yeah and don't forget that you know last year we managed very well it's only really been this year that luck has not been on our side with this mm-hmm. but uh yeah i think that we're going to do we're going to do our best to try and get back in action because there are people out there they need us tom they need us to get through this list we're heroes to them
1: oh absolutely yeah i uh, i completely agree
0: okay tom so let's be heroes why don't you tell the boys and girls listening at home What the uh, double bill is going to be for this episode It's an interesting one
1: It is an interesting one And there's some interesting parallels there We've called it backwards Horror And the two films are Texas Chainsaw Massacre And The Hills Have Eyes And they do have a lot in common They are both um, You know People getting out of their depth In places that they're not used to Out in rural areas kind of thing And they're both directed by two people who many consider as masters of horror. Now, we'll discuss that a bit as we go on as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's also been kind of uh, sadly quite fitting, the the timing of it. It wasn't planned that way, obviously. But, um, you know, something happened recently. And uh, one of the films that we'll be covering is The Hills Have Eyes, which was directed by Wes Craven.
0: That's right, yeah Just very strange timing on that As we were getting ready to come back We sort of heard this very sad news Um, I'll just read you what I've got here about Wes Craven And then you and I, Tom, can kind of You know, discuss our personal feelings On the man and his work Mm -hmm. Uh, Master of Horror Wes Craven sadly passed away on the 30th of August at the age of 76 from brain cancer. His last film as a director was Scream 4, the latest instalment in a series he kicked off back in the early 90s. Um, Actually, the mid-90s, I got that wrong. Uh, Craven had 29 directing credits to his name and is widely considered a master of the genre for his reinvention of horror three times in his career, beginning with The Last House on the Left in 1972. Um, It was uh, 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street that brought him the most success, melding supernatural elements with a slasher story and uh, bringing horror icon Freddy Krueger to the world's attention, of course. He would direct another entry in the franchise, New Nightmare, in 1994. It was 1996's Scream that brought him modern-day success with a slasher film that successfully played on the genre's tropes in a smart way. Craven uh, sadly leaves behind a wife and two children, including Jonathan Craven, who is himself a writer and director. So just a little bit of a a blurb there on the man uh we could dedicate a whole episode to him really uh so i just sort of wanted to type up a little bit of information about him there i didn't know he was suffering from brain cancer to be honest with you it was i would assume it was something that was kept quite quite quiet Uh, i don't tend to keep up on the sort of latest horror news these days so I, i wasn't aware if that was reported at all i mean do you know tom uh
1: i'm kind of the same i i um I don't keep up much on horror news either. I I tend to exist in, in the time that we, we tend to gravitate to, you know, and focus mm-hmm. more on those. So um, I had no idea. So, I, But I don't think it was reported, to be honest, but I might be wrong.
0: I think it was kept fairly quiet. And, uh, you know, cancer is something that is sort of prevalent in my life and has been for quite a number of years. So it was very sad to hear that. Now, I do want to say that uh, I want to call myself out on something here because uh, I have said in the past, uh, I believe on the Strange and Deadly show, um, I think I may have even said it on my old Boy show, I'm not sure, sure, to be honest with you. But um, I have said in the past that I didn't think Wes Craven was a master of horror. Um, And I said that based on the fact that that he had made a lot of very mediocre films and had made just a couple that I consider to be genuine classics. And I think... Uh, I believe I said that on The Strange and Deadly show on an old episode I can't remember what what it was in relation to mm. uh, but I have said that before I've said it in the past and I have to say you know, I'm not the sort of person who's going to all of a sudden pretend that I didn't say something You know, well I didn't really mean it of course You know, at the time I did mean it uh, hearing about Wes Craven's death it actually hit me much harder than I thought it would it hit me quite severely and uh, you know, of course there's that element of cancer there which is as I say very prevalent in my life and it, it made me feel sort of quite reflective and i ended up reading a lot of articles about wes craven and i do feel after looking at everything looking at the legacy that he left that he was a master of horror and that i was wrong and i i'm again I, i'm not going to pretend that i don't think that a lot of the movies he made were quite mediocre i think that is the case but it it you know I was saying when I was reading that blurb there, Tom, that he did reinvent horror a couple of times throughout his career, and I think that if you can reinvent a genre, add something to it, and has made a couple of films that I would consider to be quite masterful, then I think that I think you do deserve that status
1: I think when you first said those things i I was in agreement, and you know I'm not gonna backtrack and say, oh i was you know he has made a lot of mediocre films, but you're right, he, he's made some very important films too. Um and films of a time that is very important to us. And, you know, films, good or bad, I don't think no matter what I, I thought of them or think of him as a master of horror, I've always thought him to be a lovely man, a gentleman. Yeah. You know, you you listen to interviews with him uh commentaries on things very gentle very intelligent and no one's got a bad word to say about wes craven absolutely nobody no unfortunately we are getting to a time when the people who dominated the time that we tend to gravitate to are are getting very old now and you know unfortunately this is going to start happening i think
0: yeah, I was thinking thinking exactly the same thing when, when I heard about his passing, just thinking about the fact that of the sort of quote-unquote modern generation of, of horror directors that we know, you know, the Carpenter, Romero, Argento, mm. Craven, you know, Cronenberg, Craven was part of that yeah. and he's gone and um, it really sort of made me think that we're living in a world now where someday we are going to have to say goodbye to these people and uh, it really did make me sort of sit and reflect and think about Craven and kind of re how I felt about him and you know like I said I'm not going to pretend that I didn't think those things uh, but I have with his passing it sort of hit me quite hard and it made me rethink and, and like I say reanalyse his work as a director and I think that there's there's some really good stuff in there and he deserves to be remembered as, as you know the master of horror that I think he was.
1: Mm. Okay well Wes my hat is off to you you know thanks for everything and uh, you know Rest in peace, my friend.
0: Absolutely. Rest in peace. Well, we're going to continue our West Craven chat now by talking about a, uh, a film, an early film of his that he made that was remade quite some years later. Tom, why don't you tell everybody about The Hills Have Eyes?
1: Okay. Also known as The Family That Woke Up Screaming. That's an interesting title. Where's it known as that? Do we know?
0: I I think it was uh, a a alternative title in the USA. Mm, Okay. I believe you know a lot of this information comes from IMDb, so you never know for sure. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah.
1: Okay. It was released in 1977 and written and directed by Wes Craven. Out in the arid desert, there's little to do and even less to see. The Carter family is passing through on their way to California, stopping off at a gas station run by Fred who warns them to stay on the main road as they pull away again. They're towing a trailer all the way in which many of the family members stay. The family is comprised of parents Bob and Ethel, played by Russ Grieve and Virginia Vincent respectively. Their kids Brenda, Bobby and Lynn, played by Susan Lanier, Robert Houston and D Wallace. Lynn's husband Doug, played by Martin Spear and their baby Catherine. Also along for the ride is their two dogs, Beauty and Beast. Despite the warnings from Fred, the family decides to venture out in search of a sight to see, but they skid off the road and crash, rendering their vehicle and the trailer stuck out in the desert. It's out here that the dogs begin to become twitchy and uneasy, sensing danger lurking somewhere out in the hills. The family are being watched by mysterious people who hide out in the rocks and bushes, Unaware of their oncoming plight, Bob and Doug form a plan to head out in search of someone who can help rescue the family. Bob sets off for the gas station again and Doug looks for whatever he can find. Not long after the two men head out, Beauty runs off into the craggy rocks and Bobby chases her, only to find her lifeless body gutted. Bob eventually finds Fred at the gas station, the latter revealing that he once had fathered a child, who wasn't born right. He was destructive and burned down his parents' home, killing his young sister in the process. Fred abandoned the child in the hills, presuming he'd die within hours of being left out there with no water or food. It seems, however, that Fred's son lived and has had his own family of deranged cannibals who feast on anyone unfortunate enough to come near their hideout. Fred is captured and killed soon after, with Bob being taken back to the camp and tortured by the cannibal family. Doug returns safely with some supplies, but before long two members of the dangerous cannibal family attack the trailer, raping Brenda, killing Lynn, wounding Ethel and kidnapping the baby. Bobby and Doug arrive too late to help, with Doug discovering his dead wife's body and his daughter missing. Fortunately the remaining members of the family, Beast, the only dog left, returns to them with a stolen walkie talkie and Doug ventures out into the rocks to find the family. Can Doug find his missing daughter and take her back from the cannibals? As he seeks revenge, the cannibal family is out for blood and they'll soon meet up in a deadly fight to the death.
2: Alright, this better be good. I need your keys. Oh, but crying out loud. I locked myself out. <sighs> Couldn't you wait? God. Hey, you give me the keys, please! <sighs> Look, some weird is going on around here. Dad's not back yet. You said that you heard heavy breathing on the CB. And now the beast out there barking like he's heard. Oh, Bobby. It's probably Beauty. She always sounds like that when she barks. <laughs> Beauty's dead. What? Beauty's been dead since this afternoon. Beauty's dead? What happened? Why didn't you tell us sooner? I tried. <laughs> When I found her, she'd been gutted. She'd, somebody slit her. right It was pretty bad. I was so scared, I ran away. Okay. you just hold on right here? I'll get a flashlight and I'll take a look.
1: Okay, Chris, the hills have eyes. What do you think?
0: Well, I first saw this film when I was a teenager. Mm. And at the time, I didn't think that much of it, really. I didn't... Didn't dig it that much it may have just been a you know a very uh, small, uh, short attention span uh, you know on account of being a teenager and not really focusing on it properly or perhaps I found that the sort of arid climate the desert landscape quite boring perhaps to look at uh, so it's, it's been interesting since then I, I've seen the remake of course I saw the sequel to the remake we'll talk about all of that a little bit later on Watching the film again I actually found that I liked it quite a bit more I think that it is dated in some areas. Uh, But overall, I think there's a good sort of ominous atmosphere to it and attention to it. And I still think that, you know, we'll we'll discuss this in in greater detail, of course, when we get to it. But I think that the attack on the trailer is still quite, you know, quite chilling and intense. It's definitely got some very good aspects to it and it's quite gritty and grimy. Really, I think, I'm glad that we grouped this and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre together because I think that what they share... Uh, with each other is you know obviously there are some plot similarities there but I think what they share with each other is that sort of grimy grittiness you can imagine this being very much a, the the sort of pinnacle of grindhouse cinema and um, I enjoyed it a lot more than I did the first time around.
1: Okay, all right. Um, I think we're in a similar place, not not entirely the same. I mean i I saw it quite late. I didn't see it as a child or a teenager. Um, I saw it when. I think it was Anchor Bay brought it out on DVD in the UK. And it came with a documentary called The American Nightmare. And I watched it, you know, and it's got a reputation. And I was, maybe it was expectation. I was expecting this classic, you know, up there with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I watched it and I I just didn't like it one bit. Um, And I sold that DVD soon after so it has been interesting to rewatch it and this time I don't I, I won't go so far I, I think you like it more than I do I think it's okay um mm-hmm. I don't I wouldn't say I really like it um I, I think it's all right I wasn't bored it, there's some things in it that I really like but the overall experience didn't do a great deal for me but it it was okay um and that that's the best I can really say about it. So um, you know I guess let's let's get into some details maybe.
0: Yeah, let's get into some details on it. So it 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 is very much. I mean, both of these films are going to be covering this sort of plot point anyway. It's very much the typical thing of people who are, for all intents and purposes, are, are foreigners to this particular kind of landscape. You know, they're city people more or less mm. who are who are stuck out in the desert somewhere. Uh, I mean, how do you feel about that? The idea of that, injury is that something that you're quite fearful of? The idea that you might be, as a person who perhaps you know, like me, I live in London, driving out somewhere into the in, into the south in America and getting stuck out there—is that something that you feel that you're particularly fearful of?
1: It's an interesting one because I, I guess you know being a, anywhere where you're out of your depth, where there's people who live there who who know the place, who are streetwise to that place. I, I, you know i've been in situations like that before not in the you know i was in the backwoods in america but i think we've all been somewhere it can even be walking into a pub where you're in a strange town and it's like fucking hell i walked into the wrong pub here <laughs> you know yeah, and everybody looks at you yeah. yeah you know um so i i think it's a it's quite a universal concept and it it can be wherever you know we've had it in the jungle we've had it um in other places probably throughout the strange and deadly show so far so yeah in in a way it is and you know america is a country that i love i've lived there on occasion in the past and it it is quite fascinating to me that it's such a vast country that there are still places that not really undiscovered but um less populated Yeah, it's quite it is quite interesting to me.
0: Yeah. And the idea of of perhaps sort of uh, perhaps it's a bit far fetched, but the idea of these sort of secret societies of people who might be living there, you know, because we don't know, you know, you, you can't tell me that the entirety of America has been covered and explored completely. You know, we just don't know. So. It's, uh, I find it quite an interesting thing, really, the idea of being this sort of person who's quite foreign to this particular area, the backwards, you know, you've lived in a city and now you're stuck somewhere which is very, very, very unfamiliar to you and how do you get out of it? And I think this film does quite a good job of, of, of exploring that theme. Now, I will say that, that I found the family in this to be quite irritating, mm. uh, particularly the, the mother, Ethel. I, I thought that she was just yappy, just incredibly yappy and irritating, and the family is, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about the remake in a bit more detail. I thought the the family in the remake were were, were more likable. and um, mean, you know, Bob, for example, who's the the uh, the uh, the father here, is I found to be just a bit of a crabby jerk, really. Yeah, you know, I know he's. Do you know what I mean?
1: Uh, absolutely. You know, talk about getting, uh, you know, your audience to like your characters. He comes on says some racist comments you know and he's just a cranky old bastard so it's like well okay well see you later Bob <laughs> you know
0: yeah I think you know for a family that's sort of stuck out there and you're supposed to feel quite sorry for them I think that they that perhaps they didn't do as good a job as they could have done in making that family quite likeable now we have Doug who's, who's the hero of the piece and uh, got a fantastic por- porno moustache Tom I mean that really is uh, he was working it
1: there was some good, good moustache work. Um, little <laughs> denim shorts. So yep. you know, I think uh, we can learn a lot from Doug.
0: <laughs> yeah, we can learn a lot about what not to wear in life. It is amazing, isn't it? In the in the seventies and eighties, men wearing those shorts. I mean, they're so, you know, your bollocks are practically
1: hanging out the of
0: them. I mean, they're so short, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I found Doug, you know, sort of reasonably, you know, okay. Uh, I My favourite characters in the film were the dogs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm a bit of a dog person, so, you know, that sort of makes sense. So we, we start the film off, obviously, they've arrived at this gas station owned by this guy named Fred. And uh, I didn't put it in the, the plot summary there just because I didn't think it needed to be in there. But um, there's this girl who lives in the hills named Ruby. And I, she visits Fred, I presume, to get supplies and food and things from him. And she's going to be very important to the film as we go on. Uh, he hides her away when these people turn up. And, of course, it's the Carter family. Uh, we've got a young Dee Wallace here, who, of course, Dee Wallace is... I think of everybody in this movie has become really quite a genre legend, I would say. Uh, has, If you look on IMDb, she's got so many credits to her name. She's got over 200 acting credits on there. So, you know, of all the actors in this, she's the one who really kind of, um, you know, became somewhat of a star, I would say.
1: Yeah, quite a few credits to her name.
0: Yeah, she really does. Um, So, yeah, we've got the family there. They're at the gas station. They uh, refuel and then they head back out. Uh, Now, I believe, again, I didn't put it in the plot summary, but they're looking for a silver mine. And Fred, you know, at the gas station, the gas station owner. he tells them, Look, to be fair to him, unlike the... The remake, he pretty much warns them, you know, look, stay on the main road, you know, don't and don't venture out there. There's nothing to see there. So he's pretty much telling them, look, stay away because something bad's going to happen. Of course, they're all, you know, fairly up themselves, I would say, at this point in the movie. And so they're like, ah, whatever, mm. you know, we're going out there anyway. And they get stuck out there. So, an interesting concept there. They get stuck, of course, they run off the road. I think Bob nearly hits a rabbit and he's like, well, I can't be having with this. And so he uh, skids off the road and. You know, they're up shit creek without a paddle, really. And it takes a while to get going, doesn't it?
1: It does, it does. Um, I mean, I, th- there is a point in the film where I, I do start to sit up and go, okay, here we go, you know. I, and it, it finds itself for me, but it's it's not yet. You, it just seems to be a lot of to and fro and a lot of here and there. And, and you know, then we meet the cannibal family and stuff like that. And it's, I don't know, it's all just a bit, I'm not gonna say go as far as to say tedious or boring to me. It's not that bad. It just it just didn't really grab me to be honest. And maybe it is because I just found those family the family to be so poorly drawn and I didn't really care about them that much, apart from Doug and his mustache. And so you know, this, this midsection I, I do kinda of lose interest and it, it should be the point where it, you know the 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 other family are introduced, and I'm starting to take notice. But I don't know; it just doesn't do much for me.
0: I think when the attack on the trailer happens, mm. that is, I think where it starts to ramp up a bit because I still think it's quite a sort of intense, difficult to watch scene. Really, you know, the idea of the home invasion, as it were, mm. the idea that you're being, you know, assaulted by these these mysterious strangers and you really you've got nothing that you can kind of defend yourself defend yourself with um i think it's quite i think that scene in particular is probably the best scene in the movie just in terms of how effective it is in portraying their plight Uh, now i have to say that sort of building on that what my biggest issue with this film by far my biggest issue is the hill people themselves i think they're silly yeah. Uh, I think they're portrayed in a very silly way with the exception perhaps of Michael Berryman who plays Pluto in this who is uh by all accounts an absolute sweetheart of a man and mm. um, he's always always on the convention circuit seems like a genuinely lovely man. He's the guy who sort of looks quite strange he's got a, d- a disorder and um, has very much played roles, you know, sort of mutants and and the like. Um but a, a really lovely man. Uh with the exception of him who I think fits quite well. <laughs> I think the hill people like the mama I I I don't think that they... That aspect of the film I don't think is dated well at all. Uh,
1: you know, I'm glad you said that because I completely agree. I, I think they're pretty rubbish. You know, we've got the one who looks like the lead singer of Thin Lizzy. We've got, like, the mum with... <laughs> you know, they might as well have had bones through their noses. They're so... I don't know. I'm not going to say cliché, but... You see, I, I watch this back to back with Texas Chainsaw and when you, you see what they've done in Chainsaw and then you see this, it it's just so poor in comparison.
0: No, I agree with you. It's it's super over the top, hmm. uh, but in a way that's not, you know, even in Texas Chainsaw, you could argue that's over the top as well, but I think it's over the top and frightening. Hmm. These people, are, I, I find to be generally quite laughable. Uh, so that aspect of it is not, and the voices they use and everything, you know, they all talk a bit like this. And it's, and it just, it's the one aspect of the film where I was like, I'm not particularly afraid of this. Mm. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. You know, if they were better, it, it, maybe I would feel different about it. But I just don't really feel any threat from them. But like you say, Michael Berryman, he's a, he's a legend. We all love a bit of Michael yeah. Berryman. Um, but the rest of them just do nothing for me
0: yeah he's good he fits quite well the rest of them you know in particular i think the character of mama the mother i oh, i think she's pretty terrible actually i think the the acting as well i think in general is pretty terrible uh, you know ruby's okay but again there, there's some some quality issues there the, most of the performances from the hill people it's not an assu- there are no assured performances in there really no uh, so that is a, a difficulty, but I do think... I mean, what do you think about the attack on the trailer? Even though you know at this point that you're not particularly afraid of these people, they've not aged particularly well when we're watching it now, but how do you feel about that particular scene?
1: Yeah, it it is one of the highlights of the movie. You know, uh, I, I do remember it, but unfortunately I, I was starting to turn off a bit by that point in my brain, and mm-hmm. it, it's... It's not actually this bit that makes me sort of uh, sit up and take notice, but it, it is good. It's it's kind of like the last 10, 10, 15 minutes of the film that really I kind of go, okay, this is getting good now. And then unfortunately it ends, but you know, you, you're actually, you seem to be quite taken with the, the trailer attack. So what about you? What What is it you like about it?
0: Well, it's difficult to say, <laughs> using the word like is difficult because I'm the sort of person who, you know, feel quite emotional about these things and mm-hmm. I've fa- found it to be quite harrowing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt that way about the, the scene in this one and in the remake. I think that it's just, you know, there's a, to me, there's a sadness associated with it, the idea that these people are coming in, uh, that the you have, inside the trailer, you basically have two women who are more or less defenceless yeah. um, and then obviously Li- Li- the character of Lynn comes in and she can't do anything... And, um, and, you know, Doug then coming back to the trailer again, he's come back too late and he comes back and he sees his dead wife there. And it it, it just and his daughter missing, of course, and it just is, you know, I can imagine that that, that is the hill people themselves realistic. I would say no. But that idea of that, the, the, the idea that that could actually happen, a home invasion like that, where a tragedy, I mean, it's happened before, you know, the Manson family, for example. Yeah. So that idea to me, I, I find to be a bit chilling. And I think that's why that that works. And I do have to say that, you know, as you say, the last 10 minutes or so, I think where this fails and where the remake succeeds in, and, you know, again, I don't want to keep mentioning it all the time. We'll, we'll talk about it in a bit more detail. But I think where this fails is that it, it just is, at the end, it's 10 minutes of people running around rocks. <laughs> Whereas in, in the remake, it you know, there's a town there and it, and it, it just is it's you know it it just is a different sort of thing playing with the same idea but done in a different way but I, I do think that from the trailer attack onwards to me it perks up and I know as you say that it didn't really perk up until the end for you I think by the time I got to that trailer attack and that was that was going and then the rest of it I found to be you know sort of reasonably entertaining I, I walked away from it thinking yeah you know it takes a bit too long to get going maybe and parts of this are ridiculous but overall I'm, I'm sort of enjoying this
1: mm. yeah I- I think, uh, you know, I like the scene where the the family start to fight back. You know, old Wes likes his hero setting traps, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> you know, they they rig the caravan and stuff like that. That was all good stuff. And you're right, the, the end is a bit sort of people running around, rocks kind of thing. But I, I don't know. It seemed to start to grab me at that point. And when Doug starts to, you know, really step up and uh, becomes... I mean there's always these things in this kind of film where it's like you know they start to become the thing that that's been uh killing them kind of thing because they have to to survive and I'm not sure it's trying to teach us any great lessons it's just he's doing what he has to do I guess I don't know but um yeah you know I re I kind of dig the ending.
0: Yeah, I did, I don't mind it, but it is a bit like just people running around going, hey, come back! <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> what, effectively what it is. You've got the character of Ruby there, of course, who is... And we kind of know even from the beginning, really, that she's going to end up being a bit more sympathetic towards Doug and his family. I think that, um, you know, that transition from being you know, a cannibal woman to suddenly feeling quite sorry for Doug and the baby, I think it happens a bit too quickly, maybe. But, uh because ruby is in the second film uh, The Hills Have Eyes part two and they, she sort of has transformed and changed into, into being a relatively normal person i can't imagine what that would be like when you're brought up in that sort of environment you know as we know from what fred has has explained the uh i can't remember his name now but papa jupe i think it is yeah um is the you know sort of the head of the family he was fred's son and he ended up having a family we don't know if he had we don't actually know if these are his actual kids or whether they were perhaps normal people that were were kidnapped as 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 you know babies and and were raised. You know, I'm talking about the girl specifically, and were raised as his child. We just don't know for sure. You know, is Mama the actual mother of the children? We you know, all these things are not really explained. But I think that uh, I, I think that the transition there for, with Ruby is, is a bit too quick for my liking. But I mean, overall. Yeah, the fight towards the end, and Michael Berryman having to fight off Beast, the dog, yeah, and uh, getting his foot chewed up and his neck chewed. Um, <sighs> I, and you know, I I love those dogs in the movie. So I think I think it's um, yeah, it's a decent ending. We've got to talk about the the abrupt ending with Doug just madly stabbing Mars to death, which is I think quite a good image to end on. It wasn't the, the original ending. I'll tell you about that a bit later on, guys. But right. uh, yeah, I think it it was. I think the fact that it is quite abrupt then it just sort of ends with Doug hovering over Mars stabbing him to death and of course Doug's been probably irrecoverably changed for the rest of his life how can he not be Um, quite a a good little ending shot there I think
1: it is, I I quite like it too Um, And like I say I think other films of this kind where you know the, the hero I mean we talked about it way back when with I think uh the Diodato movie, Cannibal, was it? Uh, and Robert in that has to become a, a savage to survive. And I think that movie was trying to tell us something, you know, uh, give us a little message about something, some sort of commentary. I'm not sure if this one really is, but I, I, I'm quite satisfied by it anyway.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that there's any particular message there. I think it's more that Wes Craven wanted to make a movie about cannibals. Yeah. And, um, you know, but a different kind of movie, you know, one that's not sort of like the Italian one set in the jungle. Mm. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I, I I, don't know, Tom, you know, I, I quite enjoyed it. You know, it was better than when I last saw it as a teenager where I was sort of bored rigid by it. Uh, I, I would suggest you watch it again in another 10 years and see how you feel. <laughs> maybe, it'll, uh, maybe it'll work on you like it did for me. But, I mean, do you have any sort of, you know, how can you sum up your feelings on this
2: overall
1: um probably the way i came in it, it was okay you know i i can't sorry wes i wish i could give it more you know um but it just didn't really do much for me it was okay but there's much better examples of this subgenre the backwards uh subgenre which you know continued on for years um I I don't know whether some have been made recently, but I mean, there the wrong turn movies that they had a few sequels, probably diminished in quality, I guess. But, you know, they're they're still successful in their own right, I suppose. So I think there are much better examples of it. And we're going to talk about one of them in a few minutes, but it's okay. I don't hate it, but I'm not sure I'd watch it again.
0: Oh, that's absolutely fair enough. You know, I'm not going to be reaching for it anytime soon. i i I mean this was his what i think this was his second horror movie after the last house on the left i think the last house on the left i'm not a big fan of that movie to be honest with you i've always thought it was quite overrated actually but it is a a film that was i mean it's still one of the most notorious films ever made um as far as i'm aware tom and perhaps you can correct me on this because i'm not sure but i don't think it's been released uncut in the uk or has that happened now
1: I don't think so either, but I've never, I, I, you know, I've never bought it because I I watched it many, many years ago. I can't really remember it, but I only remember not not being that enamoured with it, so I've just never bought it.
0: No, I mean it's a film that is, you know, again, I feel like I'm insulting Wes Craven by saying it, but it it is a film in which it's trying to be very dark and very serious, and it has two bumbling comedy cops in it. Mm. and uh it is is a really it takes a lot away from that movie but he did in in his own way kind of reinvent the thriller and make this incredibly infamous movie this is you know i don't think he ever made anything that was as i suppose you could say as bleak as that um this is sort of it's mining similar sort of territory but it's not as you know it's, it's not as bad as that it's not as violent uh, I don't think it's a bad it's a bad movie. I sort of quite liked it more than I did as a as a teenager, as I said. And I yeah, not one of his best, but he's building on some interesting ideas there. I and mean, I do think there's an evolution from you know from the last house on the left to this, where it's just shot a bit better. It's still quite grimy and gritty and and cheaply made, but it um I don't think it's a bad film at all. I really don't. And I think it it is worth a watch if you've not seen it before. Uh, why don't we talk very quickly, Tom, about the remake of this, which was released in? Let me see. I've got the information here. Uh, it was released in two thousand and six, I believe.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, now, I'll go on record as saying uh, I'm not going to. I don't say this very often in my life in yep. general, but I think the remake is better. Uh, I it is very similar in that it it sort of hits a lot of the same plot points. I think the family in the remake is more like... When it was directed by Alexandre Ajar, or Alexandre Ajar, as it were, who was a French director, Um, he'd come to some prominence thanks to his film High Tension, or Switchblade Romance, as it's known in the UK. Um, His version largely sticks to the, the plot of the original it focuses more on and this is what i find interesting fo- focuses more on the idea of these hill people as being actual mutants who were living in this old town they were doing nuclear testing on the, the town as a result of that the radiation from that um, the explosions it caused these people to become mutated and i i actually think that that's much better it, it uh... Than the version the the version we have in the Craven original, where it's it's not silly at all. Actually, these are genuinely fright frightening mutated people. Doug is, is more of a hero in that. I mean, have you seen the remake?
1: I have. I um, I rate it quite highly. To be honest, I really enjoy it. Um, interesting. Derek Mears is in it. I think he plays Pluto, uh, mm-hmm. and he would obviously go on to play Jason in the Friday the Thirteenth remake. But um, yeah, I you know I would watch the Hills of Eyes remake over the original every time, to be honest.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've seen it more times than I've seen this. And you know, like I say, I don't think it's something that you'll hear me say very often that I prefer a remake to the original. I, the remake is slicker, of course. It doesn't quite have the grindhouse quality that this does. But I think Doug is is more of a hero and there's some nice gore in it as well. Very brutal, uh, very brutal. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, much more brutal than than this one is. I mean, there's some, you know, nice axe in the head and all sorts of different things. And I think that the family is is more likable. And um, there was a remake that was made uh, of that movie. I'm kind of dipping into the trivia here, but I feel like we've kind of summed up our feelings on this one. Yeah, we? yeah. Um, so I'll just say that there was a a, a sequel to the remake. Uh, that was actually, which was I didn't know this until I was researching this. Was actually written by Wes Craven and his son Jonathan. Um, And that was released in 2007, a year after. It was just called The Hills of Eyes 2. That was largely panned by critics. And remember rightly, that's a bunch of soldiers, basically, go out there into the hills Hmm. and um, end up being captured by, you know, a family of mutated people that are living out there. Um, Did you see that one?
1: I did. And I uh, agree with the critics, to be honest. I I can't remember it that well, only that I thought it was pretty rubbish.
0: Yeah, it wasn't very good. One of the interesting things interesting things for me while we're on the subject of alexandre arja is i really love the, the movie high tension that he made and it was always quite sad to me that he as soon as he made that film and got all of this attention and these you know these sort of plaudits um immediately fell into the hollywood remake uh trend and has pretty much since then with the i think he made a film called horns with daniel radcliffe in it a while ago uh, but apart from that, he's has just pretty much pumped out remakes. He did The Hills of Eyes. He did uh, a remake of, a, I think, a French film called Mirrors. He did uh, a remake of Piranha. I so, think,
1: didn't he have a hand in the Maniac remake as well? I don't think he yes. directed it, but maybe he wrote it or something like that. But I really like the Maniac remake.
0: Yeah, was, it's a shame we can't uh, discuss that at some point. Perhaps <laughs> we'll leave that for a special podcast someday because that's a that's a really interesting one. Where uh, I remember watching that, thinking, "There's no way they're going to be able to get even close to this," and was uh, quite surprised by that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but he's sort of been stuck in the uh, the remake trend. But uh, I do think The Hills Have Eyes is quite a strong work. So I mean, if you've not seen, if you're afraid of remakes, which in general, you know, it's okay to be. Uh, what I like about that movie is it doesn't it doesn 't spend too long trying to tell you exactly why things are the way they are like of course, it tells you that this nuclear testing was happening, but it 's pretty much just from Doug looking at newspaper clippings it doesn 't you know dedicate half an hour at the beginning of the film to telling you how this hill how the hill people came to be the way they are. which seems to be a trend of remakes and reboots i 've noticed you know Halloween, for example, Rob Zombie has to explain how Michael Myers became a psycho you know mm. um so yeah a very very decent film i think um. So I think that's pretty much it Let me just read you the rest of this trivia I've got here So uh, director Wes Craven shot the film for an estimated $230,000 Over a period of around five months It was filmed in an incredibly arid climate With temperatures reaching 120 degrees during the day The uh, rocky surroundings made it difficult to move around while filming Um, Now I didn't put this in in the trivia But Michael Berryman, the condition that he has One of the sort of side effects of it is that he has no sweat glands Oh wow uh, and so because of that, you can imagine how difficult it was for him because he had to be in this climate working long days and he couldn't sweat it out. Uh, so it, it goes to show the dedication the man has yeah, yeah. to uh, filming, you know, because it would have been incredibly difficult for him. You know, the rest of us, if we get very hot, our body, you know, very instinctively, very naturally, you know, sweats it out to try and get the moisture out. And um, he couldn't have that. So it was um, quite interesting to read that about um, Michael Bremen, a bit of a trooper. Uh, The original cut of the film that Wes Craven submitted to the MPAA was given an X rating, being more violent in general. Uh, Craven ended up cutting the film down in order to secure an R rating. Unfortunately, his original cut has long been considered lost, uh, which is a bit of a shame. I wonder if that extra violence, if it hadn't been lost, they almost certainly would have restored that. And it could have been sort of quite interesting, a sort of grittier, nastier film. Now, the original ending had Doug and Ruby returning to Bobby and Brenda back at the trailer site and reuniting with them there. Uh, I believe, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, I think the remake actually ends that way.
1: Been a while too, I can't say for sure.
0: I think, you know, Doug, uh, if I remember from the remake, the little girl in there, I can't remember if her name was Ruby, but in the remake she sacrifices herself in order to save Doug. Um, whereas, obviously, in this film, Ruby remains alive at the end. Uh, the film was apparently inspired by the famous Sawney Bean legend, an historical, though uh, long considered potentially fictional, event in Scotland about a cannibalistic clan. Who numbered almost 50 Legend has it that they would capture and consume passers-by and transients Craven took some influence from this story and applied it to his film As indeed did Toby Hooper for The Texas Chainsaw Massacre So there's another link for you there Um, Didn't put it in the trailer either But Craven was apparently inspired by uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Which came out in 74, this came out in 77 So that's why there are some similarities in terms of plot Craven was a big fan of that movie Hmm. Uh, the Hills of Eyes would go on to enjoy good box office success, reportedly making around $25 million when analyzed by 1992, according to Am uh, Am IMDB. Uh, the film was successful enough to produce a sequel entitled The Hills Have Eyes Part 2 it was also directed and written by Craven as was released in 1985 now according to IMDB production actually began on the film before Craven shot A Nightmare on Elm Street Uh, pressure from the studio and a lack of budget forced him to abandon the film though he would later return to finish it as a result of the issues that plagued it the film was comprised largely of footage from uh, this first entry and also features the legendary dog flashback scene (laughs) where in the uh the surviving beast, who's the dog who survives in the first film, <laughs> remembers what happened to him previously. Uh, Craven has since disowned the film. Have you seen uh, the sequel?
1: I haven't. I, uh, I don't think I'll be rushing, to be honest, to see it.
0: No, it's absolute rubbish. Is but it? it is. But the dog remembering what happened to him in the first film is quite funny. Does, uh,
1: um, does you... Michael Berryman come back?
0: Yes, he does. Right.
1: So he lived?
0: Yes. He lived at the end of the first one, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, which is, I mean, even at that point, he sort of, of of all the people in the film, he's the one who kind of came out the most iconic, really. If you think about it, yeah, yeah. Uh, the film is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray, although um, there's no official UK Blu-ray release available, which I was quite surprised about. I would imagine one might be coming. What with Wes Craven's, you know, very sad death. Um, I would be quite surprised if they didn't re-release it. There is a US release. It's locked to Region A, meaning you'll need a multi-region player in order to view it. You can get the sequel. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it, but you can get the sequel on Blu-ray here in the UK, but apparently the original film, not so much. You'll have to make do with a DVD if you live in the UK. A bit of a shame, that. But yeah, so overall, you know, enjoyed it more than I did the first time around. I think, Tom, we, we can... Uh, your opinion was that you were a little bit bored by it and you think it's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But, uh, you know, I think things are looking up with the next film. A little film called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I think you're going to tell us about that one, aren't you? A
0: little known obscure film, Mm. Tom. Uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, also known as... Now, these are all working titles for the film. uh, Head Cheese, Leatherface and Stalking Leatherface. So I think even at this point, they knew that Leatherface was destined to become iconic. Yeah. Uh, it was released in 1974, directed by Toby Hooper, uh, written by Kim Kim Henkel and Toby Hooper. Uh, let me read you the synopsis here, the plot. Uh, Sally Hardesty, played by Marilyn Burns, and her disabled brother Franklin, played by Paul A. Partain, are travelling through Texas with their friends Pam, Kirk and Jerry, played by Terry McMinn, William Vale and Alan Danziger, respectively, in a van. They're on the way to revisit the old Hardesty house, which was owned by Sally and Franklin's grandfather. They stop at a gas station where they meet an older man who invites them to stay and enjoy barbecue there, but they decide to press on. Along the way, they pick up a hitchhiker and immediately notice how strange he is. He borrows Franklin's knife and gouges it into his own hand, bleeding and laughing. He then takes a Polaroid picture of Franklin and asks for payment. When the group refuses, he burns the picture wildly, and the group throws him out of the van and drives away. After reaching the old abandoned house, Pam and Kirk decide to head out to an old watering hole for a swim, but instead they happen upon another house. After knocking for a short while, Kirk enters the house and is hit on the head with a large metal mallet by a strange masked figure with an apron on. Pam shortly follows and is captured by the figure, Leatherface, and is hung on a meat hook left to bleed and watch in pain as Kirk is dismembered with a chainsaw. Concerned for their whereabouts after some time, Jerry decides to head in the direction they went and happens upon the house as well. He ventures in and soon discovers Leatherface's deadly kitchen and the body of Pam, who has been placed in a freezer. She's still alive, but barely. However, Jerry dies from a blow to the head when Leatherface discovers him. Now only two remain. It reaches night time and Sally and Franklin debate on whether or not to go looking for their missing friends. They eventually decide to go together and take off through the woods with Sally pushing Franklin in his wheelchair. Here they meet Leatherface who takes his chainsaw to Franklin, gutting him and forcing Sally to run for her life. So it begins a deadly chase as Sally runs from the chainsaw wielding madman. She happens upon the gas station and expects safety and help from the owner, but it transpires that he's in on the act too and he kidnaps Sally and brings her back to the house where we learn that a cannibal family lives here. There's Leatherface, the hitchhiker, the gas station owner who serves as the cook, and their grandpa. Tied to a chair and ready for death, Sally faces the most nightmarish night of her life as she fights against the demented cannibals and screams for salvation.
2: Could I see the flashlight for a minute? What for? Franklin, let me see the flashlight. I'm gonna go look for him, you don't have to go.
3: Now, Sally, don't go. I don't think that's a good idea, Sally. I don't think you ought to go. Look, I'm gonna honk the horn one more time.
2: Just give me the flashlight.
3: No, no, I'm, I'm gonna honk the horn, and we're gonna wait a minute, and then if they don't come, well, we'll go, all right? Sally, they took the keys. We don't have any keys. It
2: took okay. me
0: All right, i got to keep the flashlight. All right, I'm going right. to go look for him. Give right, me the right, flashlight. No, I'll go with you. I'll go with you, all right. all right? No, Sally, come on. I'll go with you. Sally, I'll go
3: with you, but I'm going to keep the flashlight. Oh. Give me the flashlight. Look, look, I'll go with you. I'll I with can't you. push you down that hill. Sally, look, I'll
2: go. Oh. Oh. Look, I'll go with you, but I'm going to hold Never the flashlight. Never mind, i will just go
0: without it. Tom, a little film called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not many people know about it. What can you tell us about it?
1: it's uh, it's interesting isn't it uh, it's always mistaken as being a video nasty um, mm-hmm. but it's in a sense it is now Now we know about the section 3 list but it's not one of those video nasties on the you know the section 2 list but it's a tough one it, coming to this is like when we had to talk about the thing and when we had to talk about Friday the 13th it's like what's left to say it's it's really difficult. I've I've been on someone else's podcast in the past talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I just feel like everything's been said. We it's universally loved pretty much. But so it's going to be quite difficult. But I think there's things we can talk about. Um you know, even things like the DVD releases it's had over the years, that sort of thing. But for me, I caught this when I was in my early 20s and I, I still remember it. I got, went to the video shop and I rented it and took it home and watched it on my own and it, it it's a bit of a watershed moment, you know? It's mm-hmm. just that, that grimy old film and uh, it's been so cleaned up now in the releases you can get. I mean, the latest Blu-ray is, is I think, a 4K restoration, isn't it? And... Um, but it's it's such a comfort blanket of a movie for me now, and that and that sounds strange considering <laughs> <It> what <does. laughs> what it is. But it's it, I just I just adore it, and coming back to it is is always a pleasure. Um, strange as that might seem, it, it's just I've I've got such love and adoration for the movie that every time I watch it, I'm just like basking in its lovely leathery glow. And um, and and that's it, you know. I I just adore the movie. I, I can't really fault it.
0: You couldn't have made that sound more sexual if you tried. Tom. <laughs> My goodness, I sort of liken it a bit to the first time you see *Cannibal Holocaust*, and it just sort of changes you, you know, mm. in some way. Something, some part of you is changed. I first saw it. I guess I must have been about eighteen, nineteen, maybe. Um, seems like a long time ago now but it, it had an immediate effect on me i remember now, now let me ask you this first of all yeah. uh, of course it, it wasn't a video nasty it was on the section three list but i do believe the film was banned is that right in the uk
1: i'm not sure if it was banned or just not released you know right um kind of like uh well we won't bother <laughs> you know I, right. I, yeah. I don't know maybe we should have done our research a bit more but um
0: well I did a, I did a little bit and I would noticed that it didn't sort of get a proper release until quite a bit later so perhaps you're right that it's it's not that it was banned it just that you know it was so infamous they just didn't bother to release it yeah
1: yeah I I think that might be the case but I'm sure someone will uh, correct us for the next episode
0: yeah, well, look, you said it yourself, Tom, it, it, for some reason, you would imagine that it would be much easier to talk about films that we know very well, mm-hmm. uh, famous horror movies, because you know there's so much to say about them. But in actual fact, it's harder because with a film like Texas Chainsaw, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, what on earth do you say that hasn't already been said? Uh, we're going to do our best, of course, but we're probably trumpeting, you know. Or repeating a lot of the same things that other people have said. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's just a masterful piece of work. That you, it's it's, it's you sort of look at it and it's cheap and it was, you know, shot on. I mean, it it looked certainly. I mean, when I first saw it, it looked horrible mm. because of the film stock that they used, you know, and the cameras they use and everything. It was not shot with a lot of money behind it, and uh, but. <sighs> When we talk about the hills have eyes, for example, we did say that it takes a while to get going. This takes a while to get going as well. It's a slow build, but there is something that is genuinely unnerving about even the slow build. It takes about forty minutes really before things get get sort of properly going. But there is something that that is there is a feeling when I even the, from the very first time I watched it, I can remember feeling that I know something really really bad is going to happen to these people.
1: Yeah. It um it it just layers on the insanity from the get go. I mean those that opening shot of this, you know the the two figures sort of displayed like that on mm. on the grave. And when you meet the hitchhiker later, you completely understand that that's something he would do because he would think it was funny. Um, and but even in the graveyard early on with the drunk. And he's like, I see things. And he's just lying on the grass dr- uh, drunk. Um, just these moments of of insanity peppered throughout it. And it it's just, it does build up a very unsettling atmosphere.
0: Yeah, and you sort of feel that, you know, even when I was watching it this time, no matter how many times I've seen it, it's so many times now, I'm still thinking, you know, internally, mentally, I'm thinking, Oh, you're in the wrong part of town, guys. You really don't want to be here because there's something that's not that's that's clearly plainly not right here. I I have to say you mentioned that shot there of the posed bodies at the beginning, there's decomposing bodies. What a striking shot that is. I mean, really, you know, this is the first time I've seen the movie uh on the the this 40th anniversary edition. We'll talk about that you know, again in detail a bit later, but obviously this is the best I've ever seen the film look. And mm. what a striking image that is, especially in HD. And it's still got sort of all of its grindhousey elements. And there's still the grain that's there in the film. So it's not as if that's all been swept away and cleaned up. I'm glad that it wasn't, but it, it's, I should remember thinking that from that shot alone, you think, okay, this is a director who knows how to work his way under your skin, knows what to do. And, um, yeah, remarkable shot.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think, I mean, Daniel Pale was a cinematographer, and if it does one thing, you know, cleaning it up as it has been, you know, there there is a school of thought that says, I don't want to get too much onto the Blu-ray release um, so far, but there is a school of thought that says, oh, you should watch, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre on a shitty old VHS, and I kind of, although I kind of see the romance of that to a degree toby hooper and daniel pale back in the day if you'd have said to them well how do you want this to look and put the two side by side they'd be like i want it to look like that you know oh, yeah. because you know that they would you know um and i i was i once interviewed uh, rob zombie and i asked him you know um so do you keep do you actually buy new releases of things like the texas chainsaw mask because because we chatted about it for a bit and he said, you know what, I don't. He said, I've bought that movie so many times that I don't anymore. And he said, I think if you clean up something too much, it just becomes fucking boring. And that was his exact words, fucking boring. And I don't agree. I think, you know, like you say, that grain is still intact. And what it does is shows that actually Toby Hooper, Daniel Pale shot this really well, despite budget limitations despite uh, the limitations of the shoot which by all accounts was quite a hellish one um so the it is quite interesting to see it, it with new eyes on these new releases
0: oh definitely yeah i have to say i don't really agree with rob zombie at all on that uh, i would imagine that as the years roll on and new technology becomes available i would imagine he would love to remaster You know, or or restore some of his movies, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie now, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses and the Devil's Rejects. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that he would love to do that someday when it, you know, when technology is such that you can make a film look better without having to apply you know, copious amounts of DNR, digital noise reduction. They haven't done that on this uh, 40th anniversary edition at all. It's very much the film. It looks like a film. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later. Let's, let's sort of get into the plot of this one. You may find that there are a lot of similarities here between the Hills Have Eyes and Texas Chainsaw, certainly in the way that you've got this group of, of friends who are all more or less strangers to this particular part of the world, the backwoods of America, and they end up at a gas station, much like in the Hills Have Eyes. And again, they sort of get, you know, warned by the, the gas station owner, who at this point we don't know is actually the, the, the cook. Um, and is part of the cannibal family at this point we don't know he invites him to stay and eat barbecue and pretty much warns them not to go out to the house now I, I would like to to think that the reason he w- wanted them to stay is because they would have been easy to kill there when they're all together mm. uh, and he's cooking barbecue which of course is is <laughs> most likely to be human meat Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting opening isn't it it takes a while to get going we sort of introduced to these characters Sally and Franklin and uh, other characters, that I can't remember, Pam, Kirk, Jerry, introduce all these people, and they're reasonably, you know, unlike the the family in, in Cravens, the hills Otherwise, I actually sort of quite like these people.
1: So do I. I mean, there's a couple of them where you, they're not really much more than just kind of bodies on screen with a couple of lines to say, but then you've got Sally and Franklin who are quite there's some quite subtle moments between them as well you know Franklin is this annoying guy he's in a wheelchair so he probably feels like he's a hindrance to everyone else and probably plays up to that by just being annoying in quite a defiant way and you know there's moments of tenderness with, with Sally you know they stop and talk at one point in the film and and you know all that goes away and she's quite tender towards him at times but then he'll say something annoying and and it it's quite a genuine brother-sister relationship to me and and i can kind of see the the difficulties that she's probably had with him in life and she's you know uh, i hate to say it she might see him as a bit of a drag but she's he's her brother and she kind of brings him along out of duty and, and that sort of thing so yeah it, it's quite a genuine relationship i think
0: yeah i mean when they get to the house which obviously we're just skipping ahead just for this one point you can tell that he's very visibly and audibly frustrated that he can't join in with the fun that everybody else is having he just mm. can't you know he's in a wheelchair of course and is um is of purpose is disabled and so we don't we we get the feeling that he's deeply deeply frustrated that he can't join in he can't go for a swim with the others you know he can't sort of join in with the with the frivolities that are happening there he just sort of and is is quite sort of um i suppose you could say sort of retracted within himself in, in to a certain extent uh so where the film gets really crazy, I think Tom, is when we get introduced to a character, the hitchhiker. Yeah. Basically, he wants a ride, and the van comes along with all these people inside, and they, you know, the girls in there, they sort of think, okay, he looks a bit weird, which he does, but we'll let him in, we'll help him out, and he comes in, there, and his behaviour is strange from the get-go, isn't
1: it? It is. I, it's a, it's an amazing performance from Ed Neil. He, I, I remember thinking from day one, he is he's too crazy to be acting it it, <laughs> it it's almost it's it's a strange feeling but i always remember thinking have they just got some mental patient or something in or or, or something because he's just too uh, real as that character to to be putting on a performance you know if i don't know whether i'm talking shit there but you know what i mean
0: no, I do. Yeah, you can imagine the actors staring at him as he's doing that and thinking, "Is this man genuinely insane?"
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you you look at uh, interviews stuff with him later, and he's he's a bit like Jim Carrey in a way. He mm. he's, he's loopy. Yeah, he's constantly, you know, he'll be talking fine for a moment, blah, blah, blah and then he'll go into his hitchhiker mode, and you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and he just turns it on at the drop of a hat, kind of thing. He he is a bit loopy in, in general, anyway, but. Absolutely love the character.
0: Yeah, great performance, and he has this interaction with Franklin, who is, you know, sort of freaked. Out. I mean, they're all freaked out by him, but Franklin in particular he borrows Franklin's knife, gouges it into his hand, and bleeds, and is laughing. And I mean, to be honest with you, they kept him in the van for quite a bit longer after that. If as soon as somebody does that, you're out, mate. You know, that's the, yeah. that's the end of you. You know, you're absolutely nuts. But he takes a picture of Franklin. He's got this camera around his neck, and then he asks, for, he asks for money. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, uh, I always wondered what that was about. You know, here you go. Here's a picture of you. Can I have, you know, two bucks or whatever it is? And they say no. And then he he sort of takes this, I don't know what it is, like a big piece of paper, and then he puts the picture on. Then he starts burning the picture and laughing maniacally. Mm. And uh, they throw him out of the van and he sort of smears blood on the van.
2: Yeah.
0: Like a symbol on the van. And, um,. I'd never really thought about that before. I was only watching it this time around. I was like, oh yeah, he does put a very sort of specific symbol on there. Do, do we know why he puts that symbol on there?
1: Jumping forward a little. Um, and I, d- I don't know whether it's the case. But it might be. I remember reading an interview with Marcus Nispel. Uh, the director of the remake. And he said that the the family in the remake all had very specific roles. You know, one of them is like you know maybe the woman in the shop is kind of like the early warning you know when someone new arrives in town she will let the others know and then the sheriff will bring them in and then you know so they had this system of bringing people in and and maybe there's some element of that you know putting a symbol on the van let's get these ones maybe
0: yeah, perhaps as a way of sort of identifying that, yes, that is the van. You know, if they happen upon it again, they know, he knows, this. these are the people who wronged me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so anyway, we have that I- experience with the hitchhiker and we think, right, that's the end of him. They get to the, um, I'm trying to remember, the Hardesty house and they're sort of playing around there. And <laughs> I was reading something on the internet where somebody was saying, it might have been on IMDb, I can't remember, but somebody was basically saying that really all the events of the film apart from obviously the Hitchhiker turning up, all the bad things that happen to people, it's all Franklin's fault. Oh, right. Because because he starts it off by sending uh, Pam and Kirk to the watering hole. Hmm. And if he hadn't done that, they wouldn't have died. Jerry wouldn't have died because he wouldn't have gone out there to meet them. Um, and this whole thing wouldn't have got going. I mean, how do you feel about that?
1: Probably every film you can find a point, can't you, where if someone hadn't have done that, then this wouldn't have happened, I suppose. But yeah, um, yeah I, I haven't really given it much thought.
0: It was just a sort of interesting kind of theory, if you like. Mm. Uh, so Pam and Kirk go out to the house. And um, what I love about this movie is, you know, even with the hitchhiker, it's just a very crazy experience. About the 40-minute mark, once the horror hits, it hits hard. Yeah. And we get that. The, the first instance of that that we really get is when Kirk, of course, knocks on the door... Goes in there uh, inside the house. The um, the I can't remember what the surname of the uh, the family is. Is it the Sawyers?
1: It is. I'm not sure they mention it in this one, do they? But maybe that's from the sequel. But it is the Sawyer family,
0: it is the Sawyer family. So Kirk wanders in, and all of a sudden, as he's nearing towards the the there's a, a, a inside door there, Leatherface comes out, and it's the first time we see him and smashes him in the head with a big metal. Uh, mallet and when i was a kid it scared the shit out of me like i cannot pretend that i wasn't up uh, because it's so sort of you know you imagine it to be more you know more gory than it actually in reality it's it's not in fact this whole movie really is is uh, a lot drier than you think it is but yeah. for, but it just—it's so hard and fast the way Leatherface comes out, knocks this guy out. course, follows up, goes in. Um, again, it, it just—it—it it disturbed me deeply when I was when I was a teenager to see Pam being hung up on that meat hook, and it, it's an extraordinary sequence, and it happens within a couple of minutes. I mean, it hits hard.
1: It does. It does, and it's—it's it's a great example of lesbian more. You know, it's—it's. It's, mm. It's one shot for the first part, just square on that doorway, open, bang, is down. No music, nothing. No. Just the, the, the brutality of that moment. And it, it's just perfection.
0: It really is. And it's interesting you say no music there because, you know, in a modern film, we would have that ominous music building up to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, so
0: you, you sort of, it, it, it kind of, it telegraphs it that something's about something bad is about to happen. Yeah. But in this movie there's none of that. You don't know. It, it, the first time you see the movie of course, you don't know what's about to happen. You don't know that there's even anybody in the house to begin with. So the introduction of Leatherface coming out, no music nothing, just the big clang of the mallet and then pulling Kirk's body which is shaking. Oh dear. It, it uh, I, as a kid it lived with me for such a long time. It really is. I th- I think that whole sequence and then Pam coming in obviously and being he- hung up on that meat hook and just thinking about it when i was a kid like my god how painful would that be how torturous would it be you know hmm. it's masterfully done
1: absolutely absolutely the the meat hook as well maybe that sort of gets a bit overshadowed by the hammer thing but that in itself as well is you don't see anything i i think uh i can't remember for sure but i think there might be a story somewhere about them applying some sort of uh uh, prosthetic to so it looks like it's coming out the front but they decide i don't know i might be just imagining that but you don't need it it's just you you she's got she's a beautiful girl beautiful bare back in that outfit and mm-hmm. he just throws her on that hook it's it, it is horrifying
0: it's, it's funny to think about that isn't it it's almost as if that in itself telegraph what was about to happen to her having that sort of open backed yeah. top that she had on mm-hmm. uh um what what's funny is hearing all the different tidbits behind the scenes news that the, the sort of the appliance that they that they used um they had her on some sort of sort of um hook mechanism obviously um to keep her held up there but the the mechanism itself was actually hurting her in real life, so when you're watching that scene and she looks like she's in pain, she really is in pain because the the um whatever it was that was holding her up there in that position was actually really painful for her. Um, so that's an in, an interesting thing, you know, it's um, sort of, it kind of echoes in, in in a very different way, albeit in The Hills Have Eyes, Dee Wallace, when she goes in and there's a big spider sitting on a jacket. And Dee Wallace herself was in the room with the spider and was genuinely terrified of it. So when you watch that scene, I always love stuff like this. When you watch that scene, she the look on her face is of genuine terror. She's not putting anything on there. She is genuinely afraid of that giant spider, and so a similar thing here, where this woman is genuinely in pain, um, and she's sort of she's hanging up there, and she's forced to watch. And again, we don't really see anything, Tom, but she's forced to watch Leatherface decapitating and and dismembering Kirk on the table.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So after that, of course, we then go we we go back to our our main people, and uh, we've been introduced to Leatherface. We're immediately scared of him because there's something. There is something terrifying about a big man in a mask (laughs) with an apron (laughs) on and a chainsaw. Um, So we've got our first sort of usage of the chainsaw. Uh, We then go back to Jerry and Sally and Franklin. They're all basically by the van. They want to go, but of course their friends are missing. They don't know where they are. And Jerry heads out there to the door, uh, walks on in. And what happens in that kitchen, Tom?
1: Well, he goes into the kitchen and he he opens up the fridge and... The freezer. Sorry, this is this is one moment which maybe plays slightly goofy for me. The way she comes up out of that freezer. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, a minor flaw. But then he he gets he's a victim of the mallet as well. So maybe it's probably the the only time in the film where I go mm, could have been a bit better that one.
0: You see you say that. I mean, I, I kind of feel that way now. But mm. when I was a kid. The way that she came out and the look in their eyes, it scared the fuck out of me. <laughs> I genu- genuinely didn't expect that. You know, I thought she was dead in there. And when she came, you know, perhaps I was just oversensitive teenager, but it really did get to me. And, yeah, you know, Leatherface comes in, get out of my kitchen, boy, and uh, smacks him in the head with the mallet. That mallet is a powerful fucking thing, isn't it? I mean, it it's a big old metal thing, and you smack you in the head once and you're down for the count, mate. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so you have that. Then, of course, we go back to Sally and Franklin, who are the only ones left. That's It's right. night time now. And we sort of get, you know, some of the friction between them at this point, don't we? The fact that Franklin is, there's no doubt about it, that he, he is quite irritating in a lot of ways. You know, he's holding, the, holding the, the torch, the flashlight, I suppose you would say, in America. He doesn't want to give it to her. She wants to go off and search for her friends. He doesn't want that. He wants to, he wants to honk the horn of the van instead and hope that they come, you know, come towards the sound of it. And they decide to venture off into the old woods there. And an interesting moment, basically, Franklin tells Sally to stop. You know, he's going a bit too fast or whatever. And Leatherface just comes out of nowhere. And for a film that's called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there is actually only one death in the movie that even happens that involves a chainsaw. And that's the death of Franklin. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: Nobody else is killed in the movie with a chainsaw.
1: Yeah, and which in itself is still quite bloodless. Well, bloodless. Mm. There's, there's no. You, you see it from behind, um, and I don't know whether that was a choice for, to, to make sure they didn't run foul of sensors or whatever. I don't know. But yeah. the the whole film is very bloodless anyway. Um, I mean, you see
0: a little bit, a little bit of splatter. Um, you know, sort of falling on Leatherface, but that's it really. Yeah. I mean, it. You know, as in a modern film, you would probably see just rivers and rivers of blood. Um, spraying up at him, but no, it's it is surprisingly. You know, I guess we haven't sort of said it too much, but it is surprisingly bloodless movie. I mean, really, I would say the most blood you see is when the hitchhiker, you know, jabs the knife into his hand.
1: Yeah, and and it's it's something that's been said many times by other people, but I'll say it again. You will speak to people sometimes and they would oh, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, blood flying everywhere, chainsaws going through people. You know, people build it up in their minds more than it yeah. actually is, the the level of gore and violence in it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I did the same thing when I was younger. And, you know, the more I watched the movie, the more I realised, OK, no, this is actually fairly dry. But it's one of the great things about this movie is that it, ma- it makes you feel that it's more violent more gory than it actually is in fact it's sort of fairly you know i would say that and we sort of feel the same way about halloween you know john carpenter's halloween there's really very little blood in it at all Mm. but we remember it as being more violent than it actually is And i think it's it's a sign of a great horror movie and that you can do that you can really make yourself mentally believe that it's worse than what it is yeah Uh, so all we've got left at this point tom is sally and now the film begins to rely on marilyn burns and here's where we get into something that could be an interesting de- debate i don't know um i have i i think marilyn burns does a spectacular job as sally i think that she perhaps better than anybody it was able to capture genuine fear which doesn't happen that often in a horror movie because you really feel that these are actors Uh, portraying a role and of course it's no different here but there there is something about her performance that I I feel she's genuinely fearful for her life that being said her screaming is annoying as hell (laughs) Um, I remember when I got a surround sound uh, system for the very first time and I put this movie on I think um, I think Dark Sky or perhaps it was Synapse released a version of the film which was cleaned up at that point um on dvd and i ended up buying it it was an american version that i imported and i put that film on i had to shut it off once sally started screaming because it sounded like my house had turned into a slaughterhouse i mean it was really <laughs> um so i think it's a fantastic performance but it is you know there's a lot of shr- shrilling of the ears going on tom
1: it, it, it is it's um I think it's one of the elements, though, that really ramps up that insanity. It almost the movie starts to attack its audience in a way, in, in many ways, you know, and it's just a kind of cacophony of different sounds, one of them being the screams, the other's laughter from, you know, Leatherface, and when she screams, the way Leatherface screams, and, yeah. you know, they all start mocking her with their screams, and, and it all builds up into to this sort of cacophony of sounds that just do drive you a little bit mad. Um, but that, I guess that's the dinner scene. But before that is one of my favourite bits of the movie is when she goes to the gas station and she meets the cook again. Um, We're calling the cook here. In the credits, he's he's credited as the old man, and yeah. uh, you know it's Jim Jim Sidow. Sidow. I'm not sure yeah. how you pronounce it. I think it's side out. Yeah. He's just masterful in this for me. Yeah. Earlier on, he's he's quite a an amiable chap, you know. He's you know he's a country guy. He's a bit rough around the edges, but he's a nice enough fella. And the way he just flicks that switch to insanity <laughs> yeah. is is absolutely brilliant, you know. Um, and you could just see it in his eyes that tooth that toothy smile and stuff. He's he's brilliant.
0: He's wonderfully creepy. I think. Mm. And like you say, just turns it on a dime, you know. I mean, it just really is <laughs> a pretty astonishing performance, really. Just totally madcap insane. And I should say, you know, even before we get to that point, the actual chase scene with Leatherface chasing Sally for what seems like ages, It, it I think is pretty masterful as well, because there are several times where it's very clear that she's almost about to be caught by Leatherface. And, you know, she falls over a few times, and it, it, you really get the sense that this is just um, it, it she is fo- running for her life.
1: Yeah. Well, um, the, and then the, sorry, there's an interesting point there in, in the commentary. Gunnar Hansen was saying, well, he would of course quite easily he had to slow down because he kept kind <laughs> of nearly catching her, because so, she just couldn't run as fast as him.
0: Which you can't blame her because not first of all, not only could she just not run as fast as him, it's hot as hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and she's been working these long days. She's probably emotionally exhausted. I mean, let's face it. Like you were saying, the, the her screaming definitely adds to it. And I I, I can't fault it, even though I do, you know, if you listen to it on a surround sound set, I mean it is. Uh, it's <laughs> a, a hor- it's a horrifying experience. You know, if any your neighbours hear you, they're gonna think that you're murdering people in there. But it, it it's it must be emotionally exhausting to scream that long. She must have screamed herself hoarse. Throughout this entire movie, you know, she just is, I would say for the last sort of 20 minutes or so, she's just screaming and screaming and screaming and it it is, it, it it's almost Toby Hooper saying, can you take this? Yeah. Can you handle it? You know, but going back to what you were saying, yeah, she she sort of meets this guy, the cook. And you, you're thinking the first time you watched it, you're thinking oh, salvation at last, mm. even though I, you know, I remember wondering as a teenager, but this is just some old bloke, you know, I mean, how is he going to handle Leatherface? When Leatherface comes in, you know, he's going to be dispatched pretty quickly. But in actual fact, he's part of the cannibal family. So we have the hitchhiker, we have Leatherface, and we have him. And we have Grandpa. And what an interesting character Grandpa is. He's this old sort of crusty dude. Um, Never, not explained in this movie at all, why he is the way he is, what's happened to him at all. The dinner scene is. I mean, it's it just at this part of the movie, the last twenty minutes, like, it's intense, isn't it? It
1: it is, and uh, it's it's fabulous again. You know, they're sitting around the table, Jim down with that cheeky little smile, and he's saying things like, you know, I, I I just got no stomach for killing anymore, you know, and that sort of thing. But then it, that little cheeky grin comes up again when they're all getting excited and stuff. It's uh, it's masterfully done and i mean the if you delve into the the behind the scenes stuff of this movie it, by all accounts it's quite a hellish shoot and i think that's what really probably makes it lightning in a bottle you know there is the the raw talent of toby hooper and daniel Pearl and kim henkel you know who wrote it i believe you know there is that raw talent there but i think what also contributed to it which is Probably why the sequels have never really captured this moment again is that they were actually in quite a hellish situation.
0: Oh, yeah, almost as if they were turning insane themselves, you know, mm. in, in real life. Uh, I I have to say, Lightning in the Bottle describes it perfectly, I think, that I don't think they've ever been able to recapture this. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, you know. And the sequels as well, which we'll get to, we'll, we'll talk about those, uh, as sort of are so different in tone as well that I think it just... I think Toby Hooper had one shot at this and I think pulled it off quite masterfully. You know, there are interesting bits in here, like, for example, Marilyn Burns, when the grand, grandpa is, is trying to hit her on the head with the mallet, even though they had a sort of foam piece. They had the mallet there and they had a foam piece over the top of it. Um, most people who've looked at the behind the scenes uh, you know, information and commentaries and things like that will already know, but it still was hard as a bloody rock. And when they're trying to hit Marilyn Burns on the head with it, obviously, as part of the scenes where they're trying, they're trying to make Grandpa kill Sally, um, but they hit Marilyn Burns on the head with it, and it actually does make her bleed. And you can see it in the movie, because hmm. uh, just the the. Um, the sort of, the, you know, how hard the bloody thing is, even when it's cushioned, it still was quite sort of forceful when it hit her on the head. But she manages to get away from the from the family. And even then, as she's running away from the house, because she jumps out the window with no consequences, which doesn't seem uh, <laughs> entirely possible, folks. Movies have taught us that you can just jump out of a window and be fine. I wouldn't try it if I were you. Uh, she jumps out the window. She starts running. Even then, there's that... There's the possibility of her still getting caught and taken back to the house again, because the hitchhiker runs after a Leatherface. Uh we should do, we should probably talk a bit about Leatherface, Tom, which we haven't really done, but Gunnar Hansen, of course, who plays him. What an interesting movie villain. I've always said I don't necessarily know if I include him with the likes of Jason and Freddie, because. <sighs> I, I, I sort of feel like in, in, this is going to sound strange. I feel like that dishonours his performance in this movie to sort of say that yes, he's one of these legendary movie serial killers. I sort of always feel that he didn't really belong as part of that, not because he's not worthy of it, but just because I always saw him as, uh, saw him as a sort of singular character. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm wrong in feeling that. Way. I mean, how do you feel about that?
1: I see where you're coming from because he's, you know, he's uh, there's much more going on than people probably give him credit for on the surface yeah. you know they just think oh it's a big dude with a chainsaw but you know the stories about him going to um institutions where you know people with uh mental illness were and watch studying how they moved and things like that uh, and you know he he doesn't when people start turning up it's not like okay it's killing time it's like where are these people coming from you know it's starting to drive him crazy he sits down and he holds his head in his hands and uh he's getting quite uh wound up by it. you know where are these people coming from why are they coming into my house you know um and there's all this stuff going on with him i mean later on he changes his mask he becomes uh he dresses up like the mother kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. and i think there's actually deleted scenes with, with him putting on makeup and stuff so there's there's so much going on with him and and i think he he is the definitive Leatherface because everyone after never quite got what he he did with it
0: yeah and i think also those performances and the sequels they're they're then sort of cashing in on his popularity as a character whereas I think in this it's very sort of real and raw and there are I mean Leatherface has some deep 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 psychological issues and um, you know I don't think you see that anywhere else you know anywhere better than than you do here Uh, Sally as we say managed to get away anyway and Leatherface and the hitchhiker are chasing her the hitchhiker ends up getting hit by a car and all you've got left really the only one who's left um well, no, obviously the cook is left in the house. He never came out, and Grandpa, of course. But the only person left who's ch- who's chasing her is Leatherface. And then this big truck comes along, and this guy gets out, probably scared to death, to be honest. I mean, if I was driving a truck and I saw a, a woman there who looked fairly helpless, and then there was a guy chasing her with a chainsaw, <laughs> I don't know what I would do. You know, I mean, you try and help, but um, and he's a big guy as well, you know, so yes, he can't yeah. run away. He can't run away that quickly. Uh, but he gets out. He grabs a wrench and smacks Leatherface in the head with it. Another car comes along, and Sally—I <laughs> mean, you know—Sally's just like, "Well, you know, screw that guy. I'm going to—I'm <laughs> getting away. Don't worry about him." And he runs. He runs off like, "Oh God, help me!" Another car comes along, and Sally gets away. And it's one of the most memorable—the the most memorable couple of minutes of, uh, that I can remember in any horror movie because you've got Sally driving away. Uh, well, she's not driving the car, but but she's on the back of this sort of truck, and um, and that's driving away, and she is just laughing maniacally, you know. At, at, and I didn't really understand it when I was a kid, but you sort of grow up and you realise that she's pretty much lost her mind, mm. you know, as anyone would if you go through that experience. And of course, one of the most enduring images, um, in horror history, I would say, is Leatherface just frustratedly, uh, doing the chainsaw dance, and just sort of you know, moving about, you know, uh, wielding the chainsaw just in anger that she got away. And it's it's such a powerful ending, Tom.
1: It is, and it it just leaves you there. You know, Hills of Eyes was sudden, but this, I I would imagine maybe some people who aren't as enamoured with the movie might find it a bit frustrating. But for me, it's just, you know, when Sally's ordeal is over, our ordeal is over. She drives away and it ends. And and I think for me that's quite poetic and and perfect. I wouldn't want to, you know, have a little debrief at the end where she gets to town and she's like, oh, fucking hell, that was rough, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> um, it's just like she's had an ordeal. We've, we've been immersed in that madness with her. And when it ends, it ends. And, you know, you said earlier on, and it was the same for me, once as a horror fan... And I hope the listeners were the same, but you watch it for the first time, and something clicks, and it's like if it works for you, it really works for you, and it's like it it changes your your love of horror from then on into yeah. into something where you you love this this rawness, this madness that this movie's just give us. So when when it ends like that, and she drives away, and it ends for us, I think it it's a perfect note.
0: Yeah, and when I was younger, I was also sort of I remember watching the end of it and sitting and thinking, okay, what's going to happen to her now? And there's no resolution to this really. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of her friends, her brother is is dead. Uh, Leatherface still lives. The uh, the cook still lives. Grandpa's still alive. So what's going to happen here? You know, there's no sort of cleaning up of this at the end where the cops come in and they kill Leatherface or they arrest the family. There's none of that. It just is. She got away you got away as a as a viewer but this family remains um, it really that it's a film that puts you to the test in a, in a quite a hardcore way i think but it does it without being gratuitous with any of it and i think that that's the main thing i take it. and i'm not saying i don't you know i mean i love gore you know, I absolutely do i think sometimes you know being gratuitous is, is a great thing but i think this works so well because it makes you believe that what you're seeing is actually worse than it is but the bits that are really bad are, are, are really bad it, it is you know even the it's, it still is a mental workout you know we're, we're, when Sally's going through that last 20 minutes there it still kind of exhausts me in a way because I just want her to get out of that situation and it's a you know it seems fairly hopeless at that point it is um, you know what can we say Tom it, it is uh, it's one of the best horror movies ever made and it is um, it's in my top five is it your favourite horror movie Tom Um,
1: no but it's, uh, it's up there it's up there yeah
0: yeah same for me same for me i mean it is you know i put it up there with halloween dawn of the dead you know evil dead it just is um it's a masterwork and i think toby hooper you know not having great elements to work with not having you know great film stock to work with or cameras not a lot of money and managed to make something that is is (sighs) that you think is more violent than it actually is but it's violence is almost it almost projects itself into your mind and it is um yeah what can i say man what can we say really that nobody else has said if you haven't seen it before get on it because it will i think even now i don't feel it's particularly dated yeah you know the 70s fashions or whatever but i still think it holds its power and uh the texas chainsaw massacre what can i say i, I love it
1: good good well um when we talked about friday the 13th we kind of shied away from talking about the sequels and then we ended up talking about them in a kind of muddled fashion Um, so I think this time round we kind of made the decision that we would just go with it and uh, maybe run through the other movies briefly and uh, just give a few thoughts about each one from the the rest of the series because it's quite an interesting series the way it branches off in in different ways so um, should we just run through them?
0: Well, before we do that, Tom, I'm sorry to stop you in your tracks here. Let me just read you a bit of trivia about that, mm-hmm. because uh, part of my trivia includes talking about all those films, so we can go in, into it there. And um, I'll just say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was shot for under $300,000. Um, Hooper deliberately wanted, and this goes back to something you were, you were saying earlier, Tom, he deliberately wanted little on-screen gore in order to secure a PG rating. For the film. Uh, however, the MPAA slapped an X rating on the picture. Hooper then subsequently made ed- edits to the film and managed to secure an R rating. The film would go on to gross around $30 million, more than making back its rather minuscule budget. So, you know, even there you can tell that Hooper was sort of deliberately holding back because he wanted to get a lower rating, age rating, than, than what he actually got. Um, It would be be sort of interesting to see if he just said, oh, well, you know, fuck it. I'll just go for everything. If it would have been a much sort of nastier, gorier film, we'll never know, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Uh, The film was mostly shot in uh, Round Rock, Texas, in dry and hot conditions. So I just mentioned that going back, linking it back to The Hills of Eyes. Both films made in very sort of arid climate, very difficult to shoot in. Uh, you know so hot and clammy and, and sweaty and, and just very very and probably quite difficult for, for Gunnar Hansen because he had to wear a mask for the entire thing a mask that couldn't be washed or anything like that um, although the film strongly hints at being based on a true story during the opening shot this was in fact false um, the film was actually inspired by real-life killer Ed Gain or Geen Ed Gein I think it is Ed Gain? who knows Gein, Gein, who had taken to grave robbing and exhuming bodies in the 50s. He made trinkets out of the bones and wore the skin as a female suit, much like Leatherface. Um, Like The Hills Have Eyes, the Sawney Bean legend was also an influence on Hooper when he was uh, writing the film or working on the film. Uh, so now we can sort of segue into what Tom was saying. Uh, Texas Chainsaw would go on to produce four direct sequels with the character of Leatherface proving highly popular as a signature movie serial killer. Uh, Hooper returned as director for The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 which was released in 1986. That film was very tonally uh, different to the first, being much more comical and over the top. So let's start there, Tom. Um, mm. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, how do you feel about that?
1: No, just a. To- before we talk about any of them, I think if you're gonna get anything out of any of these sequels, you you have to kinda of detach yourself from the original. Yeah. Because there, there is none of them really capture that. And none I don't think any of them you look at and think, Yeah, that's they're the same people, that's the same universe. You you have to kinda of almost go into an elseworld's place and, and detach yourself but saying that, Texas Chainsaw 2 I, I've got a lot of love for it, I really enjoy it um, I adore Caroline Williams who played Stretch I um, I interviewed her once and I, I might put that out on Gentleman's House Radio one day, she is uh, I she is stretch you know you speak to her now she's got that wonderful bubbly personality and she she told some great stories um and she's just you know i adore her she's still gorgeous as well um but but the film yeah it's over the top i mean chop top is just ridiculous um but i i really enjoy it how about you
0: Yeah, I do as well. I mean, Mark Kermode always says on the uh, the Mayo and Kermode show, Kermode and Mayo, rather, um, I can't remember the exact quote or who it was from. I think it might have been from Alan Jones or perhaps Kim Newman. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm sort of, um, I I just cannot remember the quote exactly what it was, but it was something to the effect of uh, the uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 looks like it was made by somebody who not only uh, had not made the first film, but had not even seen the first film. Yeah. <laughs> and that is very true. You know, it, this was, Text Chosen of Massacre 2 was directed by Toby Hooper, but it is, you know, it, apart from the characters themselves, it is so different. That it, it, I mean, it's very comical. Uh, Toby Hooper himself in, insisted. I guess around the time, maybe it was lately. I'm not sure exactly when he said it, but he insists that the original does actually have comical elements, and people just don't notice them because they're so sort of taken by the intense proceedings. Mm. Um, oh, I don't know so much about that. Perhaps that you could argue that the hitchhiker is, you know, because he's so over the top. Perhaps there are some comical elements to that. But certainly in in te- TCM two, it, it is ridiculous. Like like we say. I mean it was released what bloody 12 years or so after yeah. 11 or 12 years after the original. Don't go into it if you've not seen it don't go into it expecting it to be anything like the original, but it's a fun it's a fun time.
1: Yeah, it's it's an 80s slasher, you know, uh with it does have some madness of its own. I mean Chop Top is just fucking insane. But uh, you know, it it's it's more than the 80s slasher mold. Uh but there's, you know, there's a lot to like about it.
0: Yeah. Now I own this film, this next one time, but I've actually never watched it. I just I should probably do that soon Leatherface: The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, it followed in 1990 and featured a young Vigo Mortensen. What can you tell me about that?
1: Hmm. It also features Ken Foray Um it's uh, <laughs> uh, and I again detached from the original. I think it's an okay slasher. You know, it, it's interesting the release. There's a documentary and it was directed by Jeff Bear, who is directed some dreck in his time, you know. Um but uh, but he, he's also quite a culty kind of um horror director and uh, and he's directed some fun stuff too. It's um it's not a bad slasher. It it's a lot of people give it hell and, and like I say, on that release there's a documentary where everyone it's quite an interesting documentary because everyone involved is just saying what went wrong, you know, right. Um, But it's okay. You know, I don't mind it. I might give it a, a watch again soon. It's, um, it's okay.
0: Yeah. I'd like to give it a watch. I mean, what is what's it like tonally compared to the second one?
1: Well, well, they, it's a bit, it's more serious. They're trying to get it back to the original and, and you can see that, but like, there's a totally different chainsaw family involved. Um, Leatherface is the only kind of link, but there's no explanation as to as to why, you know. Um it's it's almost a remake in itself, you know what I mean? It and that's what I, I find about the Texas Chainsaw series. It there's not much in the way of connective tissue. Maybe yeah. part two there is, but the others are almost like a series of remakes. Yeah,
0: which is a bad idea, I would say, if you're yeah. trying to sort of remake the best. Now, you say that they tried to get it back to being more of a serious thing with yeah. Leatherface uh, Part 3. Yeah. Um, they screwed that up royally, Tom, with the next one, which is uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, which was released in 1994. I have seen that. It stars uh, young Matthew McConaughey and Renee Zellweger, and it is trash, in uh, my opinion. How do you feel about it?
1: I've only seen it once, and and I never bothered to watch it again. It was just sh- shit. We're, worst Leatherface ever, as well.
0: Oh God, despicable, mm. absolutely laughable, very very sort of comical. Leatherface is just, I don't know how to describe him. I mean, he's he's on the full on sort of, um, you know, wearing the the woman's make women's makeup and the the mask and everything. Um, not scary in the slightest. Uh, it is in itself almost a remake of the original as well. Mm. The only person who, who obviously, you know, two very famous people came out of it, which is McConaughey and, and Zellweger. And despite McConaughey having a number of years where he was starring in really rubbish romantic comedies, I always had a bit of time for him. And obviously he's, he has since, you know, come back to the fore majorly and become a really, a really good, um, actor starring in a lot of very big things. Uh, I've always said, I, sometimes I will judge a person um, based on how they feel about some of their early horror work, if they happen to have been in it. Mm. And it's fairly well known that Matthew McConaughey still speaks about uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre very fondly, Does he? and had a very good experience <laughs> making it, and Renee Zellweger will not talk about it, even if you he paid her to. <laughs> so I think that goes to show that, you know, McConaughey is is kind of cool I mean I don't blame Zellweger for disowning it because it is a piece of crap but it it is really bad now we move on to the remakes Tom so we've got the original uh, The film was remade successfully in 2003 um, of course the remake is just called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre directed by Marcus Nisport uh, now this is an interesting one Tom because there are some people who really like this there are some people who really hate it I happen to think that it was done very well mm. what about you?
1: I I agree. I I really like it to be honest. Um you know, there's a lot of complaints there from people who again, I don't think can quite divorce themselves from the original. Well, it's too slick, it's too this, it's too that. Fair enough. I, you know, I'm not going to dispute anyone who doesn't like it, but I like it a lot and I think the two can coexist quite nicely as, you know, different takes on the same uh, story, you know, um I I do really like it. It's more brutal in its way. Yeah. It harkens back to the original in some ways, but not too much. The the whole story is is very different. There's different characters in it as well. Um I I've got a lot of love for it.
0: Yeah, me too. You know, I think if you can believe it, you folks out there, it actually is more serious and more brutal than the original. Mm. Now you know whether you like that or not. I mean, it it really there are over over the top elements to the original. You know, with the hitchhiker and you know the sort of zaniness of that, which is not in the remake at all. It's very much played sort of dark and serious. Uh, I, I've noticed a lot of people don't like it because it sort of began that trend of horror movies that had that sort of brown color palette to it, yes. where it looks like somebody sort of wiped the film through dirt. But I have to say I, I I really like it. What I don't like so much Tom is uh, the film that followed it which was a prequel entitled Texas Chainsaw Massacre the Beginning and that followed in 2006. How are we feeling about that one?
1: Well they kind of screwed themselves over with the end of the last one where Leatherface gets his arm cut off, didn't he? Mm. So so they've you know they've de-winged their main man. So I th- think Sheriff Hoyt was dead as well and he was a very popular character. So they could only go back, and unfortunately, it's just a pretty by the numbers um, You know, these days, we're, I think we're living in a time when sequels can be very good. You know, yeah. we see that quite a lot. But I remember the days when the se- sequels were almost always just a pale sort of retread of the one before, and and I think this one is.
0: Yeah, and it tries a little bit too hard, I think, to to tell us the backstory of Leatherface. Mm. And I think sometimes... Now, having said that, I do think Leatherface is quite an interesting character. So I'm sort of willing to accept that a little bit more than I would be, for example. You know, they're going to sit there and tell us all about Jason. You know, we know that he was a kid. We know that he drowned. I don't need to sit there and hear about what his school lessons were like, you know. Whereas in uh, TCM, the beginning, they do a lot of that, of trying to tell us how did Leatherface come to be this person. I think that's a flaw with it so not so keen on that the remake good so we come to the final uh, and most recent film in the series i say final i mean i would imagine that texas chainsaw is a franchise that will continue to live on mm-hmm. um i don't think that they've been nearly done with it but the most recent film in the series is 2013's texas chainsaw and um, was also known as texas chainsaw 3d it was billed as a direct sequel to hooper's original film now i haven't seen this one um i actually see it on netflix all the time and i just have can't be bothered to be honest. Um, I probably should watch it at some point, but uh, you have seen this one, Tom. Now I've heard that the build as a direct sequel to Hooper's original film is a bit, is a bit bollocks. Tell me about this one, Tom.
1: In the lead up to this, they did talk about that a lot. They made a lot of how Bill Mosley was going to play Drayton Sawyer, the cook, uh, take over that role because Jim Seidel was dead, and. You know, we saw that the Chainsaw House recreated and, and all this, that kind of thing. And it starts and it starts moments after Texas Chainsaw Massacre finishes. Mm-hmm. And they've even went as far as to insert um, Bill Moseley as Drayton in scenes, uh, in a scene with, original gunnar hansen leatherface and they they sort of make this transition over so it's quite interesting but then it jumps forward like i don't know how long 20 years or something like that so it's like they made this big deal out of it and then all of a sudden well you know i was quite looking forward to seeing bill mosley's take on the drayton sawyer character what's he going to do because you know we all like a bit of bill mosley um but he's in it for seconds you know a couple of minutes and then it's to the future and it becomes a very by the numbers and quite stupid slasher movie there's there's so so much stupidity involved now i know our, our friend chris ward um i think i've read him saying you know you've got to divorce yourself from the original and on its own it's it's a decent slasher movie um to a degree, I've seen worse slasher movies than it, and I think if you sit there and watch it, with that in mind, it might be all right. But it's um, it's not good, mate. It's not good. And if you say you you don't you don't like the kind of backstory of Leatherface kind of thing being too, um, being too much to the fore, then you're not gonna want to know what comes next after this one, man, because. The next one is actually a prequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So they're just going all over the place with this thing. And there's a a bit of a spoiler, but it's, it's kind of mentioned as the synopsis for the movie. And I can say it if you want, you know, and give you an idea. Yeah, go on. Well but, anyone... you,
0: but you should probably warn yeah, people that you're gonna give a spoiler.
1: Yeah, well it, it's kinda what they're basing the whole sale of the movie on, so it's out there. But if you know, jump forward a couple of minutes if you don't wanna know. But what they're saying is Leatherface was a hitchhiker. He isn't of the Sawyer family. He was a guy hitchhiking who was taken by the Sawyer family and uh as a teenager and was kind of warped into the Leatherface we know. How right. shit is that?
0: Yeah, doesn't make sense to me, really. What a bizarre thing that is. I mean, look, I know this—the most recent film—it had Marilyn Burns and Gunnar Hansen in it as well. Hmm. Uh, which, as far as I know, they are cameos at best.
1: Well, uh, Marilyn, Be- yeah, they are—they are cameos. Uh, Gunnar Hansen's very quick. Marilyn Burns is sort of pivotal. Uh, to the whole thing but you, sh- you should watch it just so you know
0: yeah just so- now are we meant to believe that this is the same Leatherface that's in the first film
1: yeah yeah but it is
0: but he looks completely different I mean when I, when I uh, have seen I think I saw the trailer for it and he doesn't look like the same guy
1: well he he ages because the most of the film takes place like 20 or more years later no. so he's a much older guy um, but I guess as he got older, he got smarter as well because there's there's not really any of that kind of, you know, that mental, you know, the disability that Leatherface has. He's just this mute sort of uh, killer machine.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, look, I'll give it a go. I didn't actually know there was another film coming in the series, so that's going to be another prequel. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. quite Bizarre. amazing. You know, it's funny. I don't want to go on about this too long, but it's funny you say that you were quite looking forward to the idea of this being a direct sequel because I originally thought they were going to set the film, the whole film, in the 70s. Me too. And I thought that would be quite interesting. You know, I mean, again, it was like, well, I don't really want a sequel to the original, but if you're going to do it, that would be sort of interesting having maybe another set of people coming in. But it seemed like that was really bit of a chip wasn't it really that was a selling point to get you in there and then you find out that the stuff that's set in the 70s is only you know only about two minutes long and then the rest of it's all modern day
1: that's exactly it that's exactly it. you know they yeah. they really sold it off on the back of that idea and then just then just got rid of it and that was the only thing that really had me interested
0: yeah very strange decision indeed well look don't worry about that we're here to talk about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Now the film is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can find this anywhere. I mean, you, know, you won't struggle at all. A uh, 40th anniversary edition was released in 2014 that includes a new 4K scan of the film and a plethora of extras. So let's quickly talk about that. Tom, um, this was the uh, this <laughs> the second copy of the film that I own on Blu-ray. There was a version that came out a few years ago called the Seriously, Seriously Ultimate Edition. (laughs) Um, So I assume they probably got that wrong. Um, I then had about three different DVD versions of it. I didn't think it was possible for the film to look any better than it did on the Blu-ray I had before, but I was wrong. Um, The 40th Anniversary Edition whatever restoration work they did on that it's the best i've seen the film look and it still looks like a film it doesn't look like some cleaned up plastic piece of nonsense which sometimes can happen i remember there was a version of predator that was released on blu-ray the i think it might have been the first or second version of it where they basically use what they call dnr which is digital noise redu- reduction mm. to um clean up get rid of the grain and it just made everybody look like plastic oh. um you know, you sort of generally want to avoid it or use it, just very slight touches of it to help. Um, here, it looks like they have really done a bang up job on that. Um, have you seen that version as well?
1: Yeah, that's the one I watched today. It's a, it's a beautiful release. The the thing is, as the years have gone on, uh, one will come out and you think, yeah, this is the definitive one. You can't yeah. really get better than this one. And then they'll bring something else out, uh, you know, because there's various documentaries that have been made, and they'll so. To bring out another one and include that, and then they'll suck up a commentary from a different release. And as it's gone on, it's morphed into this sort of ultimate thing that you got the Steelbook edition, I imagine.
0: Yes, of course. Wow, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Didn't you get it as well? Because I, I remember telling you about it, and um, you were going to go for it.
1: I did, absolutely. It's um, nice, that's the one, and, and I, it is pretty comprehensive and definitive there's like four commentaries on it and everything I
0: I only watched it today so I didn't get a chance to look at the extras but I'm definitely gonna gonna do it you know it's funny there are certain films where this happens all the time we get a new version you know every five or six years Evil Dead it happens a lot Um, you know you get it with uh, not so much with Dawn of the Dead maybe but certainly uh, you know film film like this Um, so it, it, it I suppose dawn. I was going to say Dawn of the Dead. I'm trying to sort of think up. I'm looking at Michelle to see because there are certain horror films where you can just always expect a new version of it to come along at some point. So you never know. The fiftieth anniversary edition, if they release it, might be. You know, they might be able to do something even better than this as technology advances. But I can't imagine that it could ever look better than this.
1: No, no, it's. If I ever have to buy this movie again, <laughs> I'll be pissed. But you know, I don't know. I'm a sucker for it, so I probably will if they bring something else out again. But this one's pretty definitive.
0: We say that. I mean, I'm just about to buy in October my you know seventh or eighth edition of Deep Red. So you know <laughs> it's it's coming out from Arrow. So yeah, the 40th anniversary edition is the one that you want. Uh, so that's it, guys. The Hills Have Eyes and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and of course we bid a very sad goodbye to to Mr. Wes Craven. It it is a shame that we didn't, you know, sort of get to watch one of his masterpieces that he's made, a Nightmare on Elm Street, for example. But um, we will definitely miss that man. And what can we say about Texas Chainsaw? It's it's a classic. If you've somehow not seen it, and assuming you're not pissed off that we've basically spoiled the entire thing for you, go and see it because it is it's a bit of a life changing moment, really. Uh, Tom, it's time to move on to the next section of the show. The if you like the final section of the show, let's listen to some feedback.
1: It wouldn't be the Strange and Deadly show without our old friend, Chris Ward, with a little bit of um, audio feedback, so take it away, Chris. Go on, Chris.
3: Hello, boys. It's uh, Chris Ward here. I just thought I'd uh, drop you a line, as it's been a while. Um, I think uh, your Friday the 13th show was the last time I spoke to you, Um, which I happily played my son that episode, because uh, we were on a long car journey, and I said hey son listen to this you'll hear uh your dad mentioned on this podcast in a minute and then chris proceeded to make a joke about me masturbating in the dark which i now every time we listen to my ipod i get is the guy on the radio going to talk about you masturbating again so uh thanks for that chris but uh <laughs> away from that away from that um yeah a lot of the films you've been uh you've been covering i haven't been that familiar with really so uh, that's part of the reason i haven't really uh dropped a line but i have been listening um i uh, as a bit of a note i have seen gbh i saw it many many years ago um and i'm gonna back chris up on this one um it's not a very good film i don't think um i think there is a bit of a, a tendency to uh what's the word glamorize people like cliff twemlow and that when uh you know a lot of the films that they actually make aren't actually that good but um you know, People like different things, you know. If there are, I'd rather people were out there making things like that than not doing it. So, uh, But no, GBH isn't that great a film. Um, I have just ordered myself a copy of The Evil as well on your recommendation, so it better be bloody good. Yeah, it's got Richard Krenner in it, of course it's going to be good. Um, anyway, I just wanted to uh, put in my two pennies worth on your next show because you're covering two of my favourites, really. Um, the Hills Have Eyes and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre um anyone who knows me knows my love for um backwoods horror and that's backwoods with a double o not an ar um although that could probably count for something as well um yeah uh you know everybody has a franchise which they like to say is, is their franchise and i suppose texas chainsaw is, is mine um but before i get to that hills have eyes um, uh, from wes craven um Not a film I've got a massive history with, to be honest. Uh, I saw the second one first. I saw that back in the 80s. Um, You don't need to see the first film, really, because uh, half of uh, Hills Have Eyes 2 is made up of flashbacks from the first film. Uh, Even the uh, the fucking dog has a flashback, so uh, there you go. Um, Yeah, a creative low for Wes Craven Hills Have Eyes Part 2. But, um, yeah, the first one, I didn't get to it until... um, the Anchor Bay DVD that came out a few years ago the two disc set which is a uh, a wonderful set to have um yeah cuz you just couldn't get it anywhere really I just couldn't find it anywhere um yeah I don't think it's a film that's uh dated very well to be honest it does look a little bit um silly nowadays but you can see why back in 1977 it caused a bit of a bit of a stir you know Michael Berryman's quite freaky looking anyway so it's uh Whatever he's in, he's going to cause a stir. But, um, yeah, I do think The Hills Have Eyes is is a film that is actually... The remake is better than the original. Um, I love the remake that came out in 2005, 2006. Um, I think it's a much better film. You know, I'd I'd rather watch that than the original if I'm in the mood. But I still like the original. It does have a nice uh, late 70s charm about it. But, uh, yeah, it's not one that uh, I've gone back to that often purely because... I've got the remake and I just prefer it. I think it's a much stronger film. Um, as a side note, uh, I don't know if you'll be aware of this, but uh, you've got Hills Have Eyes, you've got the bloody awful Hills Have Eyes 2. There's also a third film called Mind Ripper, which uh, was made in the 90s. It stars Lance Henriksen. It was supposed to be uh, Hills Have Eyes Part 3, uh, and Wes Craven's son, Jonathan, was heavily involved in it. Um, but I think possibly due to the, the negative reaction of part two, they changed the title. Um, but it's actually quite a decent little horror film, actually. It's quite uh, it's one that goes under the radar quite a bit. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ideas in there that I think they used in the uh, the sequel to the remake. There's a lot of sort of uh, mutants with powers type things, but it doesn't quite go into full X-Men territory. But um, it's certainly worth checking out one of those at You can get it on uh, on DVD fairly cheaply on one of those uh, market sites that sounds a bit like a river in South America. Um yeah, Sir so Hills have Eyes, yep, watch it. It's great fun. Um but I prefer the remake. Uh and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's uh it's the daddy of the ball, isn't it really? Um I can't say anything that hasn't been said about it before. You know, it's just it's still wheels of power. It was one of those films that I first saw, you know, on a on a dodgy VHS tape that was passed around the playground back in the uh, the eighties. Um, instantly went and bought it when it came out in the late nineties on video, and uh, absolutely love everything to do with it. You know, I'm a complete apologist for the uh, the whole franchise, really. Even the bloody awful Texas Chainsaw Next Generation, which is bloody awful, but. um, Worth watching for Matthew McConaughey's performance. If you like Killer Joe, then uh, watch Texas Chainsaw Next Generation to see where he got uh, his cut his chops and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, another film that's got, had a remake, obviously. Um, I do love the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm not going to say it's a better film than the original because it isn't. Um, but I do view it on its own merit and I think it's a, a, a fantastic modern gory horror film where people get hacked up with a chainsaw which is really what i want so uh, i'm quite happy with that um but yeah the original you know it recently come out in that 40th anniversary set from uh, second sight films which is lovely um don't know if i should say this or not but bit of a tip go on a certain online auction site um you can actually get the australian version of the 40th anniversary set uh about for about third of the price um It is a single-disc set as opposed to the two-disc UK set, but it's still got all the same extras on it, and I can't see any dip in quality. So, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, Get the 40th anniversary edition. Even if you've got it on an old edition, get the new edition because it looks absolutely fucking stunning. Um, Yeah, and I can't say any more than that, really. Um, Keep up the good work, guys. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the Hellraiser box set when it comes out because... as Chris knows, I've pre ordered my copy already. Um I'm also looking forward to your Werewolf Woman uh show when you get round to that one because uh I don't know if you've seen it already, but it's a film I absolutely adore, um, for all the wrong reasons. But um I adore it anyway, and I'm sure I'm sure at least one of you will. I'm not gonna say which one until you uh cover it. So uh yes, uh keep up the good work, chaps. Uh no more masturbating jokes in front of my son, please, Chris, or I will have to uh punch you very hard in the face. Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. Of course I wouldn't do that. Um, I'd make Tom do it. Okay, cheers then. Uh, bye!
1: So there we go. Thanks for that, Chris. Good to hear your voice on the podcast again, mate. Uh, always appreciated. And, you know, I, th- I think he's generally in tune with us there. He, you know, he likes uh, Texas Chainsaw Remake as well. Thinks Hills Have Eyes Remake is better than the original and so on. So, yeah, I I think he's, he's quite in tune with us on this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with him on the hills have eyes. Um, I think he likes Texas Chainsaw more than us. The, the, uh, the latest one I'm talking about, obviously not the original. Um, so that's, you know, interesting. Again, I haven't seen it, so I can't judge it. Uh, but yeah, nice to hear from you, Chris. Nice to know that you're sort of in tune with us. This was an episode that we were sort of building up to, really, and we've been watching a lot of obscure stuff lately on some of the more recent episodes. It's been nice to... <laughs> come back to some stuff that's a, a bit better known and nice to know that you're you're with us on that and um and yeah so thanks chris
1: yeah thank you and um i think we've got a, a better feedback from a new feedbacker andrew smith
0: yeah i think so uh, yeah andrew smith uh, he says he's wrote an email email to us he says hi guys have been listening to you guys only in the last couple of months via the video nasties podcast uh that's chris brown's podcast uh, it has become my current favourite podcast. You both offer serious and entertaining viewpoints to these, well, interesting films. It may be good to hear reasons behind the censorship and controversy of these films by the likes of BBFC and uh, DPP. It has been interesting to watch these films as I go along before listening to each podcast and just finish listening to the Abducted and Hell Prison episode. You forgot to mention the uh, unique, woman bur- a unique woman buried up to her neck in dirt then strangled to death by python scene in Hell Prison. Uh, keep up the good work and may we all keep journeying along this strange and deadly Section 3 path to its end. P.S. Gotta love Firecracker. No, I don't have to like it and I won't. <laughs> so that is uh, an email from Andrew Smith there. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, nice good to hear
1: to, from you. Yeah, good to hear from a new feedbacker. Um, it may be good to hear reasons behind the censorship and controversy of these films by the likes of the BBFC and DPP. Uh, we don't tend to go into that much, do we? I mean, Chris no. Brown did a lot on the video and podcast these podcasts. I think the reason for that is it's it's not as well documented with these ones, I don't think. And if it is, we haven't really got the time to look at it. So it, I think for us, this was all, always just probably a more surface thing. I mean, you do uh, a bit of research on them. I do bugger all. Um <laughs> But uh, I I think that's probably the reason. You know, I think we're we're coming at it from a, a slightly different angle than than Chris Brown did on the video nasties one, which was quite academic. We're we're just those two guys sitting wanking in a cinema.
0: Yes, we are. If you that's a good callback, Tom, back mm. to the. Uh, I think that was the first episode where I came up with that. Regretted it ever since. <laughs> uh, but it it is um yeah absolutely you know at the end of the day we're just two guys talking about the movies that happen to be on the list really and that's about it you know we don't this is not some you know it's not a podcast where we're going to talk about the history of the video nasties for that you've got you know chris brown's chris brown's podcast and his book and also there's so much information out there about the bbfc and the video nasties that i think you're sort of well catered for there so no we're more just about talking about the films really uh, but yeah, so now, Tom, we have audio from our friends Brandy and Dave Jacola. Why don't you tell me about them? And also, they've had a bit of a move recently, haven't they, Tom? Things are changing in their world.
1: Yes, they uh, they have. They, they used to do a show called The Inside Outcast, which was over on Geek Planet Online, where I used to podcast many, many moons ago. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some great stuff on that site. I, I still enjoy a lot of their content. Um, but uh, they recently... Decided to end their podcast, The Inside Outcast, and they were looking for a new home. And I said, "Well, you know, we're here. You come and join us. You know, I've uh, been friends with them for quite a while now. So, and they did, and they've got a new show. It's called The Dark Corner Podcast, and it's a gentleman's Grindhouse record. So, you know, check it out. It's um, it's hard to describe what it is exactly. It's they they have a topic each." Uh, each um episode that they will talk about and it, it's generally pop culture related uh, but it's also yeah. very much a kind of slice of their life as well their their life as these two gods living in Utah and you know what they get up to in their day-to-day lives as well which is um you know entertaining too so it's the, it's the two kind of things melded together so yeah it's there on gentlemen's grand House records to check them out and we're glad to have them.
0: Yep, they've joined the family. And now let's hear from Brandy and Dave. Chris, Tom,
4: it is Brandy and Dave. So are you getting around to a movie we've actually seen? The
2: Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In fact,
4: I own it and I tend to watch it every October.
2: Well, that's when we pull out all the scary ones. Yes. That we watch the rest of the year too. A
4: favorite of mine. (laughs)
2: You like this movie way more than I do.
4: I like this movie a lot. I like that for cultural reasons, it's coming at the end of the vietnam war mm. and it's a look at the changing of american values because you take the norman rockwell family and you tweak it so mm. that they're a family of cannibals and then you have your hippies that bump into these outback people fucking hipsters hipsters hippies hipsters hip hipsters e- yeah either way it's With the same it's
2: the same thing they're yes. they're what we call hipsters now is what they were then they just called them hippies then
4: yeah, just different values Countercultural thing. I know the actor that played Franklin kind of regrets his choices. Why? But at least he commits, uh, because he's so annoying. Okay. Though I like the boldness of having an annoying character in a wheelchair.
2: Yes, and I agree with that, because you can have someone who is disabled who is also a total dick. And the fact that they portrayed that in a movie, you wouldn't see that today. So that was, was brave.
4: screaming gets on your nerves.
2: First time I watched it... Well, I can't say that I enjoyed it, but I liked it and I thought it was interesting and and all of those things. The second time I watched it, I couldn't have been more irritated throughout the entire film. I think it's because the first time you see it, it's always the best the first time, right? Yeah.
4: It's all fresh and new.
2: Unless we're talking about sex, in which case for a woman, no.
4: So some movies get better the more you watch them.
2: This is true. I will agree that it is very good at creating atmosphere, at creating a sense of dread and horror. However, shut that fucking woman up. <laughs> I mean, that scene where there she's tied to the chair at the dinner table. Oh, yeah. That's my she, favorite scene. She is screaming through the entire scene. And I just, wa- I want to eat her. <laughs> and not in a sexual way. I want to shut her up.
4: She's... Really out there, and her eyes going from side to side when they get Grandpa the Hammer to bash her in the head. Mm-hmm. Really harrowing, scary scene.
2: And not a lot of blood. No. It's all
4: imagined. It's all theater of the mind stuff.
2: Oh, yes. it's Most of the movies from that era tend to actually be that way. There's a lot less blood than mm-hmm. people think there is. Like
4: hanging people up on a hook and bashing them on the head, and boy, the actor just shaking the legs like having convulsions. Very mm-hmm. convincing.
2: Honestly, it is a good movie. It's just, I couldn't take the screaming.
4: I love how Toby Hooper uses the camera. And it's dirty and grimy, but at the same time kind of beautiful because he captures that, like, Texas landscape.
2: Yes, well, we won't talk about how I feel about Texas. Yeah, well,
4: that's exactly about (laughs) Texas.
2: (laughs) It's a barren hellscape. Okay, no, a lot of people live there, and there are some good people who live there. I'll shut up. And nice and quotable, too. Like, I'm the killer. And that sound of the
4: camera. And the opening with John Laroquette from Night Court doing the voiceover intro. I know, intro.
2: weird, crazy.
4: With Psycho, based on the exploits of Ed Gein, who actually would dig up graves and mess with the corpses.
2: Of course. So.
4: <laughs> one last thing: There's a band. Well, they're defunct now, I do believe, but they're from Cincinnati. And there's a fellow horror podcast called Night of the Living Podcast. We were good friends of ours. Mm-hmm. And one of the members of an was in this band called Pike. Oh, yes, Pike. And they have this kind of post-punk, horror-punk kind of vibe. And they have an original song called Summer of 73, which is all about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, and God, they... that
2: movie's as old as I am? Yeah. Oh, shit.
4: And it has a video on YouTube. Maybe I'll link you guys to it. I really like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's one of my favorite movies.
2: And I like it once. (laughs) And I can appreciate its value in the horror culture. But I never want to see it again.
4: It's even darkly comedic if you know to look for it.
2: Oh, absolutely. I don't disagree on any of those things. But I'm never going to watch it again. Because I will just want to bash that girl's head in myself. And I don't blame you. (laughs) It's not her. It's me.
4: If it's fingernails on chalkboard, then I... Why would
2: you say that?
4: Because that's... Probably the same reaction you had to the screaming.
2: But you know that makes my teeth hurt when you say fingernails (laughs) on a
4: chalkboard. So that's our feedback for Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
2: We love the show, of course. Of course. And we always look forward to every episode. Yes, we do. Well done, both of you. You're the best duo podcasters besides us. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. No, you're good. You're best male
4: on male. Well, that was wrong. Okay, wow. Male with male? No, Um, that's also wrong. uh,
2: You are the best horror duo podcast not featuring a woman covering the section 3 get too specific I'm sorry I apologise we love you Bye. thank
3: you
0: very much Brandy and Dave now Brandy made a really interesting point there Tom which I uh, mentioned earlier on actually uh, when we were reviewing uh, Texas Chainsaw Uh, Marilyn Burns is screaming she finds it incredibly irritating (laughs) Uh, it sort of puts her off the movie in a way I mean I can understand that what about you?
1: Yeah, I mean it, it. It doesn't for me, but it, if if it does for someone, I, I can kind of see where they're coming from. So yeah, I I see where you come from there, Brandy.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I many years ago I had a had a girlfriend long in the past who, what who found the sound of a violin incredibly irritating. Mm. So like you know when the you know Friday the Thirteenth has that music dun 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 you know and it's very sort of sharp um, violin playing and um, it just totally grated with her and and. I can understand that some things just great with people. I mean, having watching text get it didn't bother me as much as it has in the past. But I can totally understand why that shrill screaming would just irritate, irritate it completely. And it's a shame because it's a great movie. You know, if 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 it wasn't for that, I would imagine she'd be a bigger fan of it. But it just is. Some people just have the, you know, they just have those things, don't they? Just little things that irritate them, and it just makes them difficult. Makes it difficult to. Um, odd, oddly enough, this is a very very strange thing. That's on a completely different kind of. it's a completely different kind of medium it's music there's a a band called cream which of course is uh you know jack bruce and ginger baker and um eric clapton and on their uh, one of their albums there is a (laughs) this is so weird Uh, the first track on one of their albums which i cannot remember the name of now um there is eric clapton does this very sharp stroke on the guitar throughout the whole song and i can't stand it and it's not that i don't love the band or the song i do but it just the stroke on the guitar it just grates with my ears for some reason i can't take it so um we all i think we all have our foil balls don't we at the end of the day
1: absolutely absolutely so um anyway guys thanks for the feedback and it's good to have you on board and uh hope to hear from you again soon
0: absolutely good to have you
1: all right so it's time once again to say aloha to our Man in Hawaii, Rob Maloha.
0: <laughs> Wait, Doesn't he live up north somewhere?
1: That's right. Hawaii in uh, Manchester. He um, he says, Aloha, Chris and Tom. I hope you're both well. The last show was great as always, but it's a bit of a distant memory now, I'm afraid. No digs intended. Shut Well, you've you picked two absolute classics that no true horror fan doesn't love. And I'm not really sure that I've got anything new to say about them, uh, that's, we struggled with that as well. Because of that, I thought I'd share some personal anecdotes, particularly of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Being the classic that it is, Texas uh, Chainsaw was one of the first banned horror films that I sought out back in the late 80s, early 90s. I knew a friendly market trader who was also a horror fan and sold bootlegs of all the banned and cult cut films in their uncut versions you'd even get a discount if you provided your own vhs for them to record on when i went to collect my copy they'd join a the chainsaw on the label That service what stuck with me after my first viewing was the screaming here we go the film felt so intense and the last half an hour of almost constant screams is hard to forget i thought that had been sold a censored version as there was a severe lack of on-screen gore but obviously i now know that the gore really isn't there I also attended an eventful midnight cinema screening, although still banned. I guess it must have been banned because Rob knows his shit, so uh, it probably was. A local council. If you
0: want to talk about, sorry, Tom, if you want to talk about somebody who covers all of these things and the BBFC, have a look at Rob's Twitter account because he does probably does more research than we do. Yeah, he
1: does. Uh, Although still banned, local councils could show it at cinemas during the scene where franklin is dispatched in the woods a guy jumped onto the stage in front of the screen with a white sheet over him shouting ooh scary i'm going to kill you and, hell. and was subsequent what a knob and was subsequently oh. escorted out by cinema staff a few moments later he burst back in brandishing an electric knife and danced around in front of the screen until staff <laughs> wrestled him to the floor and dragged him out those were the days
0: good god man <laughs> I think that would scar me for life if I saw that, a screening of a movie like that.
1: Yeah, I know. Although I absolutely love The Hills Have Eyes, I was always after the banned or heavily censored films, and Hills was easy to get, even in the late 80s, so didn't get as many viewings. The first time I became aware of it, though, was on a bootleg of the uncut version of The Evil Dead when I saw the poster in the basement of the cabin i thought that if the poster was in that basement it must be a film worth seeing it was great visiting hills recently and it's a film that grows on me more with each viewing unfortunately with the sad news of the death of wes craven i've been watching his films with a heavy heart as i'm a bit fixated with censorship i'll leave you with some censorship info neither of these films are available in their original cuts and for once it's nothing to do with the bbfc chainsaw was orig- originally rated x by the mpaa the last film to get an x certificate before the nc 17 ratings was introduced but was later cut for an r rating and it's this cut version that has been available ever since wow that must be like the holy grail the uh the original yeah. one hills was also significantly cut by the mpaa to get an R rating, and the cut material is now supposedly lost. It's a shame that it looks like we'll never see these films as they were originally intended. Looking forward to hearing your views on these great films. Until next time, keep well and try not to break down, crash or run out of gas in any backwater towns. Cheers, Rob. Well, thank you, Rob, and thank goodness someone's done their research.
0: Um, I've got an email to read as well, Tom. We're almost getting towards the end, folks. I know it's a long feedback session, but we have been away for what feels like years um this is an email from mike holiday hi guys fairly recent listeners of the strange and deadly show but i'm really enjoying them so far and have been catching up during my work hours can't imagine it'd be that difficult really mike we haven't made an episode since the end of july so this will be uh hopefully you've already caught up by now uh saw you was discussing saw you was discussing texas chainsaw that's how he wrote it so that's how i've said it i saw you was discussing texas chainsaw in it and thought I'd write in. I blame this film entirely for my love of horror films and for many a sleepless night as a child. Turn the Cockney accent off. I was around 10 in the late 90s, you young young man (laughs) My goodness Uh, When the BBFC finally passed Chainsaw Uncut At this time I'd barely seen any horror movies And what I had seen weren't what you would describe as disturbing I'm not sure how I came to see this programme But at some point around this time Channel 4 screened a documentary about censorship in the UK A whole host of different films that I'd never heard of at the time were being discussed on the show Along with many clips that you can imagine when shown out of context Would be very disturbing for a child to see but for some reason nothing stayed with me quite like the fleeting glances of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. For years I had that image of Leatherface grabbing his victim and slamming the metal door ingrained in my memory. Even long into my teenage years when I really started to develop a love for horror films, I couldn't bring myself to watch it. A combination of the title, the fact it was banned, and the small clips I had, clips I had witnessed created an impression in my mind that this was a dangerous film, that it would be too disturbing to sit through. When I finally did pluck up the courage to watch the film, I was amazed to find how little gore is actually contained in the film. The film's power lies in its atmosphere. A constant feeling of dread is present throughout. It wasn't the film that I had created in my head before seeing it. It was, at least in my opinion anyway, something far greater. It's the atmosphere and a genuine feeling of unhinged madness that this film contains that makes it so powerful. Not shocking moments of blood and guts, we'd have to agree. Uh, I've since gone on to see this film countless time, times, including finally on the big screen last year at the London Film Festival, an experience that made me appreciate it in a new way all over again. This is a film that has influenced horror cinema in such a great way that it's completely ingrained in the culture. I only wish it could have experienced it, or I could have experienced it rather, when it was initially released. Would love to know what the 70s audience made of it. Keep up the great work, guys. Loving the podcast. Mike Holliday, and you can follow him at uh, on Twitter, you can follow him at Mike J. Holiday. Well, thanks very much, Mike. It's really nice to hear from somebody new. You know, we hear from our our loyal listeners, the ones that we always hear from, and that's brilliant too. But I do love it when we get a nice, fresh person in that we can manipulate and torture to our own uh, fiendish desires.
1: Yeah, and we've had two so far. And I think this next one is from someone we know from Twitter. uh, But it's the first time they've sent some feedback in as well, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm, absolutely,
0: it, but let, but let me just say thank you very much, Mike, and uh, please do continue to write in again. Can't disagree with anything you said, um, and I hope you enjoyed me uh, my Cockney accent at the beginning there. Right now, Tom, who have we, uh, Who's the next email from?
1: It's from Smudge. You don't find many Smudges, do you? But uh, yeah, it's from Smudge. He says. Uh, Hey Chris and Tom, hope all is well Before I get to my feedback on the two films Here's a little introduction about me I found your podcast after listening to Chris Brown's one on the video Nasties, and, and I've been a listener of yours Since episode one, good man nice. I'll be the first to admit that my horror knowledge is patchy, and I'm watching many of these films for the first time. Well, so are we mate, including the two you're talking about on today's show. Ooh. Hopefully, my virgin eyes will offer a different insight about these films. Anyway, enough about me. Here's my feedback about the two films. Some of it is just trivial observations. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, the release of the film I watched was the 40th anniversary steelbook. Although this is the first time I watched TCM, I've seen the beginning up to the point where the hitchhiker cuts Frankie with the switchblade in the van on a late night viewing on channel four or five in the early 2000s. I enjoyed the soundtrack, the radio playing in the background at the beginning gave it a certain I'm also there feeling. The blunt soundtrack during the kills and torture scenes really added to the atmosphere and feeling of dread. Sally screams at the end of the film, don't leave your conscience very easily. I like how day turned to night and night turned to morning throughout the film it gave the plot a good flow. Character wise I like Frankie and glad that he wasn't made to look stupid just because he was in a wheelchair. Uh, That could have been used as a cheap plot device. Uh, Kirk's body twitching after Leatherface hit him with the hammer is also a great reaction. One random question, at the end what happened to the truck driver when Sally got away?
0: Well, we can answer that, can't we, Tom, in in as much as, and this is going to sound like a bit tossy of me, but we don't know, because if the film doesn't show it, then we don't know (laughs) at the end of the day, you know, all we can presume, I guess, is that he just ran away and that was it, you know, because nothing is ever shown of him after that, really. Am I right on that, Tom? I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't remember what they referenced in in the latest one. Because it happened straight after, but um, I don't know. You can tell us that when you watch it but, soon. But you bit. know what?
0: That, that would have been kind of cool if the hero of the newest film was the guy who ran away. <laughs> yeah,
1: big big fat trucking dude. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: big guy. like Maybe he just ran for so long that he lost all the weight as well. It just became like this. Um, yeah, anyway, go on.
1: Okay, Hills of Eyes. An odd coincidence, I watched this film in the same week as Wes Craven died on the birthday of Michael Berryman. Uh, the release I watched was a German Blu ray, as there's no UK Blu ray release. I find this odd due to the fact you can buy its sequel here on Blue and also the 2006 remake and its sequel too. Like you say, though, I think it, it'll, you know a lot of those Anchor Bay releases are starting to come out again uh, through other companies, like Hellraiser's coming through Arrow soon, that sort of thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if it turns up soon. Uh, my favorite section of the film was when the family was terrorized by the villains starting with fred's death bob's capture and the threat levels got very intense especially when pluto and mars break into the camper i found the film i found the film lost some of its intensity and flow when the sun came up and the family took their revenge the daylight seemed to remove an element of threat that was present earlier and for some reason pluto and jupiter run around the desert in daylight reminds me of water hills the warriors also, Pluto, in my opinion, does not look like a scary horror villain. He does on the box art because he's pictured from the shoulders up in the movie. He looks too thin and wimpy. I enjoyed both movies, but for me, TCM was the better of the two. Keep up the good work, Smodge.
0: Well, I mean, Smudge is a stupid name, isn't it? But he's a very nice man <laughs> and um, always treats me very nice things and he put together all, everything you just read tom he put it together like a business presentation with bullet points <laughs> and um, i admire the effort uh thank you very much uh smudge some great points there
1: okay well uh yeah thank you smudge it's um like we like we say we always love getting uh feedback from new people and um and yeah great stuff we've got three so uh thanks everyone and if you want to email us next time our email address is feedback at strangeanddeadly.com.
0: Yep. And if you want to speak to either of us on Twitter, uh you can do so. I'm at the Gore Boy. And where are you, Tom?
1: I'm at Grindhouse Tom. And also we've got our Strange and Deadly Twitter feed, which is at Strange Deadly.
0: Absolutely. Now Tom, what's going on uh, over at Gentleman's Grindhouse Records? Is there anything that we need to be looking forward to? Uh
1: kind of. Um I think because i i have been a bit unavailable as of late there's not been much going on but you know i do a podcast called gentleman's grand house radio which is an interview podcast and i'm kind of sad it doesn't get more you know more of an audience than it does it is more or less a monthly show uh so maybe that's that's why but there's some great interviews on there with people and it's not me as a great interviewer it's just interesting people and um You know, I've got more coming up. There's some great names. You know, I've had Tony Todd on there. Um, I've had uh, Gary Smart, who made the Hellraiser documentary that we've both talked about so much. Um, Upcoming people have got the female Cenobite Barbie Wilde. There's uh, some stuff from the Liverpool Horror Festival that I went to lately. So there's a lot of cool stuff on it. And I think, you know, I I would like that show to to build up a bit. But. But yeah, the usual stuff as well. Twilight Zone podcast, I'm working on a new one as well, so that'll be able to see.
0: Yeah, and if you happen to discover Tom through this show, um, have a listen to Twilight Zone podcast because it's completely different, Tony. like He comes on there with his big boy voice, (laughs) uh, his big boy (laughs) deep voice, and just, you know, enchants you. So it's a very, very interesting show. And also, Tom, you bought a PlayStation 4 um, about two months ago, isn't it? Somewhere around there, uh, two or three months ago. And... um, I've been teasing you about it because you, uh, <laughs> of course, in, in a joking way, because you bought a next-generation powerful uh gaming console and then have proceeded to play a game that was released on the PC eight years ago and can largely be run on a toaster. And that, of course, is Minecraft. But I recently discovered, because you uploaded a video to the Gentleman's Grindhouse Records YouTube page, which you need to go and check out, mm. you've been building doing some really interesting stuff with the Twilight Zone and building it into a Minecraft world. What can you say about that?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of people who do kind of Minecraft Let's Play videos on there. And I thought, well, while I'm playing it, because, you know, I have been working a lot lately and I find Minecraft to be quite a relaxing come down, you know what I mean? Mm. You just build stuff on it. So I've done this little YouTube show called Zonecraft. And on it, I... uh, on my first episode, I've built a recreation of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, the the fairground ride from MGM, uh, MGM Studios, and it's an actual working and ride, um, but in, in other episodes, it's not just going to be Twilight Zone, there's going to be, I'm going to be recreating kind of movie things. And it might be like a, a you know, a spaceship from a movie or it could be a building from a movie, you know, all those kind of things. So it's it's something I'll do from time to time. But like you say, it's on the Gentleman's Grandhouse Records uh YouTube page, which uh, you know, if you like that sort of thing. I also do unboxing videos of like, you know, horror soundtracks on vinyl or Blu rays and that sort of thing. So that's all on there as well. Check it out.
0: As for what I'm doing outside of strange and deadly show nothing so don't bother <laughs> don't bother looking uh, so that's it guys that is the end of another strange and deadly episode it's been a long time coming we're gonna do our damn hardest to be back again in another fortnight and you know what the theme for the next episode episode 16 i guess it'll be it's sort of quite similar really isn't it why don't you tell everybody who's listening to him about what the next episode's theme is and what what the films are that we'll be covering
1: it is um, it is quite similar I mean we did say back in the early days that there was uh, although there was double bills all the way through there was going to be a couple where we carry on that into the next episode and I think this is one of those things with two films in a similar theme we've called it rural horror just to make it slightly different Um, but these are a bit more obscure one of them is called Invasion of the Blood Farmers I'm not sure who directed that one uh, but the other one is called Midnight, which I believe was John Russo, who co-wrote Night of the Living Dead, mm, if I remember rightly. Um, you can get that from Arrow Video; they brought it out on DVD in the, in the maybe a couple of years ago now. But it, it's out there. Invasion of the Blood Farmers—you might have to look a bit harder for.
0: So that's it, guys. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks for sticking with us and continuing to support us, even though we've had these sort of absences. But we're going to try our best to get things moving again so uh thank you for listening once again and we will see you hopefully in another fortnight with another episode of the strange and Deadly show i've been chris clayton
1: and i'm tom Elias,
0: and we will speak to you or speak at you soon bye bye Now along the way of course We get, so we have that We're building those relationships We get introduced to a character The Hitchhiker hmm. And this is really where I think <laughs> This is where things start to get Just a little crazy You have the Hitchhiker Who again at this point We don't know that he's actually Part of the cannibal family He comes in He's, you know um What do you call it When it, when you, you want to ride I've forgotten the name of it
1: uh... Hitchhiker
0: Hitchhiking. Oh, hitchhiking. Just call hitchhiker, just called them the Hitchhiker. Oh my god, oh god, oh,
1: <laughs> what's that thing, thing the Hitchhikers do? What's that thing? What does a hitchhiker do? Oh,
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I better start that again. Okay, uh, I'm debating now whether I should put that in the episode. Everyone <laughs> think I'm a complete tit. <laughs> Ahem. <clears throat>